Hey folks, stick around at the end of the episode. We're going to have a small chat with Scott Snyder. So enjoy. Welcome back to the DC Three Cast. I'm Brian. With me, as always, are Zach and Vince. We're going to talk about comics in a little bit, but we have some DC news to get to first. Last week, DC announced that Brian Michael Bendis will be taking over both Superman and Action Comics come this summer, and he will be uh, doing. Well, we'll get into sort of his, his overall plans for Action and Superman in a minute, but he's also going to be bringing all of his Jinx World titles to DC both in terms of reprints and uh, sort of a digital collection, as well as new stories from some of these titles. And he is to launch a, uh, a they're calling it a custom imprint. He compared it favorably to um, Gerard Way's Young Animal, where he will be able to deal with some of his favorite characters and create new ones, and he'll be writing some titles and uh, sort of curating others. So before we get into the specific Superman plans... Vince, I know you were, you are not historically a giant Bendis fan, but you were pretty stoked about all of this in our group chat. Well, I'm just like, yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong. I, I, Bendis wears extremely thin on me, his writing style. Um, but when the news hit, I, I kind of immediately sensed this wave of energy, you know? There's something that's like, there's something really invigorating about creative changes, especially on like a wide scale. And I just think it's like the perfect storm of, uh, you know, Action 1000 hitting and then this new direction for Superman that like (coughs) completely takes Action Comics and Superman, (coughs) puts them in Bendis' hands and, uh, and and clearly everybody that's working uh, at DC is kind of feeding off of that. You know, we've seen Tom King and we've seen Scott Snyder be really excited about it. And um, that's what I'm excited for more than anything. L- less so about the actual fact that it's Bendis hijacking Superman. <laughs> I mean, I'll give it a shot, but uh, I just feel like the vibes are really good on this one. Zach, I think you're both the the purest Superman fan and possibly the biggest Bendis fan of the three of us. So, how did this news strike you? Which is weird because I've I've not even I've not read like a ton of Bendis either, and I've not enjoyed his modern output at all. But I'm like all in on this because this just immediately calls me back to that like. Gold, my golden age of comics, which really wasn't even that long ago. Um, but I, I feel like it's been a long time since we've had a really strong... Okay, let me rephrase that because what I was going to say is not true. It's been a really long time since there's been a big um, like creator-driven line like this, you know, 
obviously we've had Snyder and King on Batman, but neither of those were necessarily my cup of tea. And I this just feels like something that I could potentially get really excited about and get really invested in. Um, and I guess that's what it comes down to. It's it's been a long time since there was a line or a or a you know a a kind of like singular creative vision book or a group of books that I've felt really, really invested in. Um, so I'm, I'm excited to see what Bendis is doing. And I'm really, I really like how he's kind of like pitched how Superman and action will play off of each other. Um, Why don't you describe that for the listeners in case they haven't uh, read that? Okay. Yeah. I might be, I might be a little off in my description, but it seems like Superman is going to be kind of the main book that, you know, follows Superman himself, kind of like, you know, probably not unlike how the book has been. And then Action Comics is going to be more about kind of like how Superman interacts with the DC Universe is going to be kind of like a wider thing. Is that, I mean, that's kind of my understanding. Is that... Yeah, and the, on with your understanding. Yeah, and Bendis specifically mentioned the Daily Planet playing a big role in action right. comics. Right. Um, Which is kind of, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but that's kind of what we envisioned when we pitched Bendis, like when we pitched what a Bendis book would look like. I'm pretty sure mm-hmm. a few of the suggestions that we that we put forward were like a, a Daily Planet book or, uh, you know. Right, Yes. A, a a people of metropolis book you know and um i think it's exciting to see that come to fruition because i think that plays on his strengths a little bit uh while also giving him a completely new character that he's never really worked with before to do that i mean there is a chance it could reinvigorate him you know i'm not i'm not going to say that that's a uh uh you know a foregone conclusion yeah right right like I read the Forbes interview, and while I'm not a fan of his work, I am a fan of the way that he talks about comics. And you could feel the excitement. Uh, the dude loves the medium, and you could that definitely came across. And you know, so it won't be for a lack of effort uh, if these books are terrible. You know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so I, I I like the general idea as well of having the the two books that are sort of sister books to each other with different tones and different uh, approaches to the character and to the sort of the world around him that's that is the type of storytelling that I really appreciate especially when you have uh, two books working in tandem like that you know that's the um, I know Bendis did that with Avengers and New Avengers I prefer to think of the Hickman Avengers and New Avengers you know, for, for that sort of uh, storytelling. I also, um, I, I like that, and we had said this when, when DC had signed Bendis the exclusive contract, I like the idea that DC is going all in on this, that they seem, they saw an opportunity here, you know, to talk in sort of baseball GM terms here, like they saw an opportunity to get a franchise player in here, and they, they backed up the truck to get him to be part of this, or at least the implication is that they did. You know, I don't know what more he could want from uh, from a first assignment at DC. You know, he's given their flagship character at 
arguably the biggest milestone in modern comics on two titles plus they're bringing in all of his creator own stuff to uh, and you know keeping it in print and they're giving him his own imprint this is this is a huge commitment to Bendis as a creator and i think that it's really good that dc is willing to to go all in right now because let's be fair D, in terms of uh, you know public perception dc's been kind of killing it the last year or so so they didn't need to bring in bendis this would be very different if they brought in bendis in 2014 in the doldrums of the new 52 that would have been perceived very differently than this where it felt like they already had a pretty good lineup going but by bringing bendis in they had the potential to do something really special with their line something that a comic publisher hasn't done in a very long time which is have a you know this strong of a hold on sort of public perception and also on just you know this stranglehold on perceived writing talent you know, not to knock some of the guys that Marvel has, because I think that, you know, Donnie Cates and uh, Jason Latour and Jason Aaron and um, Matthew Rosenberg, you know, there, there's a lot of good young talent there. But I think overall, if you look at DC's roster, it, it's, it's, kind of, it's kind of amazingly stacked right now. And so to bring, to add Bendis to that just shows that DC is recognizing they are at a moment in time when, when they need to capitalize and I dig that. I dig the the sort of balls it takes to make that move. Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. what did I what did I say? Like uh, uh, around the time of DCU, I said that you know this DCU stuff, whether it's financially successful or not, which it really wasn't, it's starting to make DC look like a place that it's cool to write for again. Right. And, you know, Young Animal did that too. And now you're seeing Bendis gets his own Young Animal esque imprint. Uh, I feel like that's coming right off the the backs of the critical success that Young Animal has been on the crossover success to different markets. And I think Bendis, I, I think Bendis doesn't come to work at DC, even if he's unhappy at Marvel, unless it's a cool place to work right now, you know? And that's not to say that they're doing 100% of things right, you know. Um, it's not to say that there aren't unattractive things about working there, I'm sure. I'm sure there is there is still editorial stuff that writers have to navigate. But on the whole, it's a it seems like a pretty cool place to work lately. Um, or at least it's getting there. And um, and that's exciting. And, an, oh, and another thing I want to say before we before, – uh, we either wrap up or, or you guys want to say more. But uh, one thing I know with Bendis writing those two titles is that there's not going to be fill-ins. Like, he's going to be on. You're not, you're not going to see, like, Rob Williams come and write an issue of action, <laughs> I don't think. I'm pretty certain Bendis is going to want to stranglehold on those books. Yeah, I I agree. I I think it will be like that. Now, I think we will see a lot of fill-in artists. Oh, yeah. Like a ton. That's a given. Near constant. Um, near constant villains, yeah. But at least we're starting off with some really, really solid talent. Um, glad to see Patrick Gleason sticking around. I have a feeling that's a one-and-done arc, though. You think so? Yeah, I, I think it's... Because of, you, because of your theory? Well, no, I, not, we should probably tell the listeners. So I, I had seen a couple of tweets out there that are predicting that Tomasi and Gleason are going to be relaunching Shazam. 
for DC soon. But not even just beyond that, I just feel like this is a way to kind of pass the torch for Bendis, you know, to get him integrated into the Superman world, and then Gleason and Tomasi are going to continue to do their thing together. Man, I don't know. We've we've got the Green Lantern, Green Lantern Corridors back together again. <laughs> you know, that gets me all hot and bothered. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. That is very um, true. But then also the, it's just kind of crazy, like how big this is, you know, starting off with a, a six issue weekly miniseries, putting action on hiatus for a few months and then relaunching with a new number one and then action 1001. It's very, it's very big. It's very ostentatious, you know, but it feels good. It feels really exciting. I know Vince disagrees with me on this, but I feel like because we know that in June there's going to be this weekly um, Justice League event, and there's going to be a weekly Superman event, and we know that Batman is getting married in Batman number 50, I feel like there's going to be a number of books that are going to go on hiatus between sort of the end of April and the beginning of July in terms of regular monthly books. So I think we're either going to see a number of books do the sort of weekly thing that we were seeing Superman and uh, the Justice League do, or we're going to see an event not in tone similar to Convergence, but sort of in practice similar to Convergence, where we're going to see sort of a publishing break for the main books to allow them to get ready for this new this new era, whatever it is. See, I just don't, I don't see the need for that. Here's why. They're not going to, okay, go ahead, go ahead. The Superman event does not end, sorry, does not begin until the end of, of May. It's May, I I think it's essentially Memorial Day weekend is when that event starts. I can't imagine Action Comics not, I can't imagine DC leaving Action Comics on the table without anything to replace it from the beginning, from essentially the second week in April to the last week in May when that Man of Steel event starts. Oh, I could. DC has not skipped. Well, essentially, I mean, well, essentially, like it's it's already going monthly, so you could argue that you know we get an issue in April. Man of Steel, even if it's just one issue in May, kind of like meets that quota, and then we have the weekly all through June. See, I don't know if I believe it's going to be monthly or not. I feel like that was that Forbes article had a number of things in it that felt like it was somebody who didn't have the firmest grip on the the sort of nomenclature that comics well, use. So you're you don't really think it's going to be weekly from now on? Then that he's going to be all like doing four Superman issues a month. I could see that, yeah. At Infinitum? I don't... I don't think so. I don't think so. Also, DC should give us the exclusive next time, because we know all the fancy terms. <laughs> that is absolutely true. Um, um, I just think... Wasn't Convergence... Wasn't Convergence thought of as, like, a big... Uh, fart-in-the-wind momentum stopper for DC? Like Again, I don't mean an event that is tonally similar... What not I mean... tonal, not tonally, like, but just the break from the publishing line, the break from all these books, killed a lot of interest in a lot of them. 
people need these books to be like regular. But we know we're not getting those books regular. We know Justice League is going away for a while. We know Action and Superman are going away for a while. I can't imagine DC saying like, yeah, we usually publish like 16 books a week, but we're just going to publish eight for a while and that's going to be cool. But like it's that, not that... It, it's not eight though because it's there's so many books. I mean, you're talking about three books out of 40. Yeah, I'm talking yeah, about... I mean, like, but essentially, those, like... Oh, go ahead. I say, but those three books are are not just showing up once a month. That's, that's six titles a month that we know are going to be going away for a while. And six of their best-selling titles a month. Well, but, like... So, yeah, we're getting rid of... We're replacing, essentially... I, you know, okay, barring the gap in action, we are, like, essentially trading... Four, two issues of action and two issues of Superman for Man of Steel for at least a little bit. For June, although we are. Super, right, right. Although Superman, well, you know, who knows how long Superman Superman might go at the same time of that if they're wanting to try and get it up to issue fifty. You know, it's going to have to be publishing right. through July, so Superman right. may still be going. Um, Justice League and Justice League of America. We'll be going on hiatus, right? Yes, they we, said that. We, we know the last issues of the current creative teams happen in April. Okay. And we so, know, and we know mean, that that event does not begin until the end of May. Right. Do, do we know that No Justice doesn't start until the end of May? I believe that. I believe it's like the same week that uh, that Man of Steel starts. So you're you're basically thinking that something's going to happen in May. Yeah, that there's going to be some sort of like big event in May that is going to drive the sales that are being missed from those other books. Mm. Mm, I don't know. I don't know. I don't feel like we're losing enough things to, and especially like it seems like things really kick off in May, right? Like with the with the like free com- not free comic book day issue but that's what i'm saying like there's that and then nothing happens until af- until a few weeks later so what's going to happen between that issue and the thing a few weeks later a bunch of other books that don't necessarily drive the but you know how dc operates this is th- this this taking a break from publishing is not how dc operates I but it's think like you... just for a few weeks though it's like not even a full month yeah, and I really don't think it's as many as you're making it sound. I also think I also think we would have heard about it already. Because the, even because when they did convergence, they didn't announce it with the solicitations. They announced it a couple months even before that. Again, because convergence is going to be this big like line-changing <laughs> thing. It's not going to be that way. What I mean is that the reason there was a convergence was because DC was moving offices from East Coast to West Coast and they needed a four-week buffer to get shit done. That's all I'm saying here is that they're going to there's going to be something in there for them to prep all these huge changes between Justice League and Superman and I think we're going to see more of this than we're going to see big changes. The rumor is Tomasi is taking over Detective Comics again you know uh-huh. and so we're going to see all these big changes and i think that to get us to those changes there's going to be some sort of three or four week thing that is going to be different it it does seem weird that we haven't heard about it when we it seems weird that we wouldn't know about something coming in april like that when we know about all these things that are coming in may june july but we again we know about the changes that are happening 
We know the books are ending, well, we kn- and we know we when know the changes the, are starting. But we know about the books that, like, we know about like No Justice and Man of Steel, and you know. See, my theory on this is that the DC solicits are going to drop the week after uh, Dark Knight's. What's it called? Uh, the Wild Hunt comes out. That 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 not that the issue that falls between five and six in metal. Mm-hmm, yeah, I feel Dark like that's rising. Yeah, yeah, I feel like after that, we're we're gonna get like essentially the epilogue of metal in May. Okay, I could. That is a, the the one theory I can get behind is that we're gonna get some kind of maybe like two to four issue epilogue miniseries that tie that ties into metal. I can I can maybe see that, but you know we also. They're going to be rolling out, well, I guess, I mean, no, yeah, they'll still be rolling out um, the New Age of Heroes stuff during that time, right? We, you know, we don't have dates announced for two or three of those books, the Orlando book, New Challengers. And the uh, the Jim Lee Tynion book was just delayed three or four months. Was it? Yeah. <laughs> no, it wasn't. Yes, you're it was. Shitting, you're shitting me. Yeah, I know. I can't believe that. I know. There's a there's a preview of that. Um, yes, there is. <laughs> yeah. Finally. So when is it coming? April is when it says now. Is that the most up-to-date thing? I believe it was supposed to be January. Now it's April, yeah. Yeah, April 11th. Okay. Uh, well, yeah. So, I mean, they do still have those things rolling out, too. We'll talk about the new Age of Heroes later in the show. <laughs> speaking, of, uh, speaking of the Wild Hunt, though, how is nobody suggesting that Animal Man's coming back in that issue with Grant Morrison on board? I've uh, not seen I've not seen anyone but me suggest that. Because no one has their finger on the pulse of DC like you, baby. <laughs> Shut the fuck up. <laughs> I'm the guy who doesn't believe there's gonna be a convergence esque <laughs> event. We're all on some, some weird conspiracy theories today. Well, I Actually, just think, mostly just you guys. I think that's one guy we haven't seen. It's a very animal-based uh, concept, apparently. And, you know, what, what is Grant Morrison doing there? Oh, man, you ready, you ready for a, a talk about tinfoil hat stuff here? Grant Morrison <laughs> is writing the new Sandman when Vertigo re- relaunches? No, Grant Morrison's writing an Animal Man book when Vertigo relaunches. Sure. No, why, but wait, why isn't not? he probably doing uh, Invisibles? Invisibles? What? Let's do it all. Grant, <laughs> come back and write all the books again. Man. Write, write to Arkham Asylum 2, even more twisted. He already is doing that's, that. That's I, mean, I mean Arkham Asylum 3, even more twisted than okay. that. <laughs> that's right, he is doing Arkham Yeah, and it's Damien, right? Yeah, I believe so, him. yeah. Yeah. Oh God, damn! It's gonna Comics be really good. good. They're good. No, <laughs> get Morrison on Green Lantern. That's what we really need. That's. I was just talking with uh, with my buddy, a Libraria man, on Twitter about how, like, that's the one. Or no, it was Robert Mayland, wasn't it? <laughs> it's one of our two listeners <laughs> on Twitter. I was talking to about how Morrison's never really done Green Lantern. He needs to do it. He needs to do it. I'm in. With Doug Jones on art. That's what I want. <laughs> yeah. Okay. 
Doug Jones, the senator. Wait, JG Jones. <laughs> What's wrong with me? <laughs> no, no, you want Doug Jones, the uh, Democratic senator who's voted with Trump eighty percent of the time yeah. to uh, to come do art for some or, reason. Or he wants Doug Jones, the actor from The Shape of Water. That's. Yeah. What, I think that must be what is on my mind. Or Doug or Jones, he wants Twin Peaks. Twin Peaks. Yeah. I just saw Shape of Water like two days ago. So. Yeah. Just which Very Dougie Jones do you want? Yeah, I uh, I want JT Jones. Okay. Oh, why? So he can do like two issues and then and then Monkey can take over. And he's so good though. That was like he's good. Those first few issues of Final Crisis are just the best. They are good. Um. Ooh, Final Crisis two. <laughs> well, that was Multiversity, really. <laughs> and he's doing Multiversity two, which is Final Crisis three. So. <laughs> I Man. want that to be the subtitle. Multiversity <laughs> 2, two. Colon, Final Crisis, Crisis 3. three. <laughs> Citizens on Patrol. Yeah. Uh, this kind of V3 was back in training, you asshole. <laughs> Don't fuck with my money, okay? Something, something, Bobcat Goldthwait. Yeah. Hey! <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> that's that's really good, Brian. I could never do it again. I did it once. That's, now it's it's committed to the records. So there we go. That's SNL worthy. <laughs> oh, thank you. It's just not saying much, I guess, sometimes. Uh, anyway. Uh, something, something, Japanese game show. <laughs> okay. Rory Templeton. Yes, <sighs> all right um so a- any final bendis thoughts because i i have one that I- i'm going to share but i want to get yours first um i'm 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 really excited for the non-superman stuff too um scarlet baby oh <laughs> scarlet's back it's good again yeah. walt is really happy somewhere <laughs> yep <laughs> I did. I think I bought like the first five issues of that on a comicsology sale two or three years ago, and I read the first issue and didn't touch it again. But maybe now I will. It was. It was. Uh, it was kind of far ahead of its time a little bit. I think. Like it. It. It said a lot of stuff about like. Um, kind of like. Civic unrest that I feel was like slightly before it really got ramped up, you know? Mm -hmm. Because wasn't that before the Occupy movement, or I think it was. It's hard to it's hard to know because of how delayed it was. I thought I think it was contemporary. Yeah, I want to say like it was. I don't know. Man, how big of a thing do you think it's going to be when they relaunch Powers again? Oh, fuck me. Well, I figure that's probably going to be the, uh, the like, big Jinx World, mm-hmm. l- like, launch title is going to be Powers. Uh, Powers 5, Assignment Miami Beach. That is, that is another Police Academy reference right there. 
for you guys. Yeah. Um, uh, Occupy Movement was September 2011. Scarlet started publishing in 2010. But the Arab Spring was in 2009, so probably you know if you go internationally, then uh, yeah, then it's yeah. I'm not I'm not saying like Bendis is responsible for uh, <laughs> public demonstrations. I'm just oh, saying. But basically, was... are you saying <laughs> Bendis is the girl in front of the bull statue? Yeah. Yep. Bendis okay. is the uh, Bendis is the. Um... Yeah, fuck. Yeah. <laughs> what you said. Okay. I had I had something in my mind that was uh it was going to be controversial and then I forgot it. So <laughs> Ben this is V for Vendetta. Got it. Okay. Sure. Yep. Yep. Um, He's a regular uh, Joan of Arc. Yeah. I've been thinking about uh binging a a long-running Bendis comic, but I haven't I haven't decided what it should be. If it's not Ultimate Spider-Man, you're going to be let down. <laughs> yeah. that's in the running have you not read that yet ultimate spider-man yeah no i mean i've read bits and pieces throughout the year i've years i've never read it all the way through um but i mean if you're if you're if you want an honest recommendation from me i'd say ultimate spider-man number one i would say his daredevil number two i've i've read daredevil and I, you could try Alias, although I'm not sure that that's aged as well as everything else. Otherwise, I wouldn't touch anything. Like I would not touch Avengers or X Men or any. Of oh, that I stuff. liked his X Men. I liked the first. I liked the first arc. Well, of both I will say, yeah, I probably then... didn't make it. I didn't make it. <laughs> mm, I probably made it like a dozen issues with each one. And then peeked back in every once in a while. Um, Herm. So, Herm. Herm. So, um, I'm kind of spoiling an article I'm, I'm planning on writing for Multiversity next week. But I, uh, as soon as I read Bendis's interview at Forbes, I figured out... Well, I, I have my theory about what the first arc is going to be. He, Bendis talks a lot about sort of returning to Superman's Jewish roots, which I think is actually very cool, and I'm, I'm glad that he's doing. But he talks about the um, the concept of birthright as being the big oh the the big um, driving force behind the first arc. And mark my words, we're going to get Superman's Kryptonian brother. He's going to be the villain of the first arc. See, you said that, and then I you highlighted the the Jewish heritage and I think that we're going to find out that um that after the Kryptonians turn their back on Ralph or pagan Daxamite gods that Ralph spewed them out of Krypton because they weren't worthy of the chosen land anymore that's that's my I mean that's that my is, take that is certainly a, another biblical way to uh to look at it i just think the concept of birthright is such a huge deal in in jewish culture with brothers specifically and uh jacob and esau being like the you know the, the clear like uh most famous example of that but just the idea of okay so clark is the younger brother but he's the favored one by Jorel sent away and the older brother, the one with the birthright, the one who was to inherit the the title of of the House of El, is left to die on Krypton. 
And so to me, that's just the A, that's a very Bendis story to tell. B, that is something that we've never seen before. And uh, it's 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 the type of villain reveal that publishers think everyone's waiting for. Except yeah. this guy. Yeah, I think you. I think your take is good. If that's what it is, I'm going to be pretty bummed because. Um, oh, I have no interest in when, the story. Don't get me wrong. Yeah, when you when you put it in that framework, it's kind of interesting. But also, it comes down to secret evil older brother, <laughs> who you thought, who who should have been dead but isn't. Um, Mr. Oz I, was going to be Superman's brother, and then and then Dan Jurgens found out about Bendis and. Had to change it. Mm. I'm kidding. (laughs) We all know Mr. Oz was supposed to be Superboy Prime. We're all aware of this. (laughs) Let's just move on. Well, I, for one, cannot wait until uh, Zionist Man shows up. (laughs) The pages of Action Comics. We're going to talk about a Superman analog in a little while. Um, yeah, we are. Arguably but, the Superman Yes, analog. absolutely. Um, but before we get to that, we did want to talk about uh, DC announced today two new publishing imprints, DC Inc. and DC Zoom. DC Inc. is going to be specifically targeted at the young adult market. DC Zoom is specifically targeted at the all-ages middle reader demographic of, of sort of middle school kids. Um, both lines announced a a pretty sizable lineup of talent. Not all of the creative teams are complete for these books, but let me just run through some of these here. So DC Inc. is going to feature Batman Gotham High by Melissa De Cruz, sorry, Melissa De La Cruz, uh, Batman Nightwalker the Graphic Novel by Marie Lu, Teen Titans by Karim Garcia. That one, I'm sorry, Cami Garcia, uh, Under the Moon a Catwoman Tale. By Lauren Miracle, Wonder Woman Tempest Tossed by Lori Halsey Ald- Lori ha- yeah Lori right. Halsey <laughs> Anderson. I'm trying to read this all fast, and then um, Batman Tales upon Batman Tales Once Upon a Crime by Derek Friedolfs and Dustin uh, Wynn. That really excites me because that's the uh, that's the team. That's the team, baby. Um, mm-hmm. And sorry, that, sorry, that's a Zoom title. That's one of the uh, sort of the middle yeah. ones. And then we have Batman Overdrive by Shea Fontana, uh, Bat- Black Canary Ignite by Meg Cabot, Dear Justice League by Michael Northrup, Green Lantern Legacy by Min Lee, uh, Super Sons by Ridley Pearson, Superman of Smallville by Art and Franco. That has mm. me excited as well. And then the best one, Superman Smashes the Clan by Gene Yang. <laughs> that is the best one, though. Yeah. Um, what but, a fantastic lineup! Yes, I mean that—that's sort of my my big point about all of this is that even though we don't have full creative teams, like there there is a Mira book that we don't have a full creative team for yet. Um, a beautiful cover, though. Oh, that cover mm-hmm. is great. That cover looks like like you could walk into you know like the young adult graphic novel section at Barnes and Noble right now, and you could just picture that on the shelf. Yeah, ready yeah. to be scooped up. Absolutely. This seems like the biggest no-brainer in comics that DC and Marvel should have been doing five years ago. But DC is going, again, all in on this idea with two imprints with a crazy collection of talent. Like, Meg Cabot wrote the Princess Diaries books, guys. 
bringing bringing somebody with that sort of name recognition in the young adult world to write a DC book is is crazy smart. Yeah. You know what's really weird? What's that? I I don't even know how I started following this person on Twitter. Uh, so I think like someone I followed maybe retweeted um, him or her. I don't know. Um, but so I'm looking, have you seen the image that goes along with this that has like Supergirl and hot girl and Baz and Shazam yeah. mm-hmm. with like some kids? Yeah. I have followed this person for like the better part of a year now. And they're always tweeting out pictures of Shazam drawings <laughs> and I just thought it was like some fan artist, um, but apparently it's um, their their name is uh, Mayo Naito. Um, so that's just kind of interesting that I've been like following this person for a long time, and now they're doing a DC book. Yeah, yeah. I should mention. By the way, I did not name uh, the first title is Harley Quinn Breaking Glass by Mariko Tamaki and Steve Pugh. And oh, Mir- that's huge. And Mira by Danielle Page. Those are the first two ink ones. And the first Zoom one is the next Superhero Girls Search for Atlantis book by Shea Fontana and Yancey Labatt. So when in in your exclusive interview with Dan DiDio, yes, he, he mentioned that DC was going to try to angle into the young adult and kids market a little bit. And when he said that, I thought, Okay, so we're going to see like an expansion of the superhero girls line, or we may see like a couple more young adult books or whatever. I did not expect like at least a half a dozen of each to be right. announced in in one fell swoop like this. Um, yeah, this is quite a bit more than I expected. Now they said that the only three that are going to come out this year are the the Mirror, the Harley Quinn, and the DC Superhero Girls. But regardless of that, just the fact that this stuff is on the horizon, I mean, I, I don't know how much you guys, I don't know if there are any authors that you guys follow in sort of the book announcement world, but books, like novels, tend to be announced, book, let me put this way, stuff that, stuff that debuts in bookstores tends to be announced well over a year in advance. So this, so this is not unusual to have these books announced, you know, now for, for release early next year. Mm-hmm. Um but this is, like you said, Vince, I mean, this is just a, a gigantic, I mean, they announced 3, 6, 9, 12, 15, 16 titles. Man. I can't wait to read these. And I'm yeah. not the target audience for either. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh... Well, as long as they still have all the sex and violence that I <laughs> want from my superheroes. Nay, demand from your superheroes. Yep. Then I won't I won't get on the forums and scream about how they're uh, you know, just being PC or whatever and and I'm over 30 and a serious person. I'm yeah. a normal I'm a normal human being. You are. Sometimes. Um but yeah, this is. Um, we'll talk about PC later. <laughs> yeah, we will. Uh, <laughs> this is um, this is probably the thing that will get the least amount of attention in the comics sort of journalism world, 
but is probably the smartest move DC has done in the last five or six years. This is smarter than Rebirth. This is smarter than Bendis. This is smarter than the New 52. This is the way that DC, if they want to, could truly make a lasting impact on the publishing world. Yeah, this is, yeah. I... (laughs) Um, just the number of people they could potentially reach. Uh, I mean, this is like the, the reasoning, the rationale behind the, the DC earth one books, but actually good, (laughs) you know? Yeah. 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 I can't wait to see how this all shakes out. Mm hmm. And, uh, I guess I can, this isn't really breaking news, but just sort of independent of this, on Saturday and Sunday, there has been an email chain going around the Multiversity offices where we're launching a Multiversity sort of all-ages portal on the site. We're going to try and do at least one piece a a week uh, on various all-ages titles. And so this is going to line up very nicely with that. Nice. Yeah. We're trying some new stuff, so... Anyway, that's the news of the week. Let's take a quick break. We'll be back in just a second with the conversation about the comics released on the 31st of January, 2018. Hello, we're the hosts of the Multiversity Manga Club podcast. I'm Emily. I'm Zach. And I'm Walter. Each month, we pick a manga to read and discuss among ourselves. Past books include Monster, A Silent Voice, and Pokemon Adventures. We also look back on the past month's installments of Weekly Shonen Jump, discussing the highs and lows from the Viz Anthology. We've even discussed notable manga adaptations like Netflix's Death Note. At the end of each episode, we announce next month's book club pick so you can read along with us. We're always open to suggestions for future books as well. So join us on the first Friday of every month on MultiversityComics.com, Apple Podcasts, or your podcatcher of choice. This is a, uh, a fifth Wednesday, boys, so there's less books than usual, but we got a lot of doozies to talk about here. So let's start with Dark Knight's Metal, number five, written by Scott Snyder, illustrated by Greg Capullo. Um, this is, uh, oh, by the way, uh, at the end of this episode, you will hear a, a brief interview I did with Scott Snyder about this issue, which ran on MultiversityComics.com last week. Um, but this issue is, and I don't mean this as a slight to the issue, but this is an issue where all the pieces are sort of being positioned for the finale. Would you guys agree with that? Totally. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, we get a nice little bit of uh, explanation about Plastic Man being a conductor. <laughs> I really enjoy that, and Scott has some fun stuff to say about that as well. Um, we get some nice Mr. Terrific and uh, Hal stuff. What would you guys think of this issue? Well, it's it, it, go ahead, Zach. Oh no, first. no, no! You go first. You started. I was just gonna say, uh, it, it's very much what you're saying, Brian. It's it's a table setter for the finale, which means that there wasn't a whole lot of um, wacky surprise in it. One of the hallmarks of metal is that in every issue so far, except for this one, there were like two or three really bonkers surprises. Whether it was. Uh, uh, you know the the dream of the endless, or 
uh, Bruce Wayne is suddenly an old man or uh, Mr. Terrific is back or, you know, somebody else is back and good again. You know, this, you're forgetting this issue... Martian Manhunter returned to this issue. Well, he's, I guess, he's yes. back and good again. You're right. Sure. He is back and good again. I think the impact of that was a little lessened because, um, I well, I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. I was going to say, I thought I have been expecting Christopher Priest to bring him back because he's me- been mentioned in Priest Justice League a few times. And so it was kind of a, I mean, I guess it doesn't take away from the impact of him showing up here, but also, he's not somebody who, like, hasn't been around in a long, long time, you know? I mean, this is his first appearance in Rebirth. In Rebirth, sure, yeah, yeah. Um, but, uh, but you know, I mean, this issue just felt a little lighter as far as those big, big uh, universe-changing surprises. You know, there, there wasn't even a lot of... Uh, uh, what Snyder... are you talking about? You're, you're burying the lead here. We found out what Wonder Woman's invisible jet is made of. Oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I guess we did. Um. <laughs> um, go ahead, Zach. I I really liked this issue a lot. Um, it even though it was kind of that you know like table setting, uh, get everything in position issue. There were there was just a lot of really great character interactions here. Um, it's just, it's wild how many characters this book is juggling and doing a pretty good job at it. Um, and then it, it still just feels so um, like bonk, bonkers and, and full of these weird non sequiturs, but in a good way. Um, like, I don't, have we seen this Phoenix cannon before? Is that a thing we've seen in an earlier issue that I've just forgotten? I can't remember. Mm, I, I can't either. But then you just, like, turn this page and it's, like, Mr. Terrific, Terrific explaining the the existence of this giant cannon thing. And then the next page it's setting off this, like, giant chain reaction thing boring into the center of the Earth. And it's just, it's it's insanity, but it's... It's really fun. <laughs> yeah. The only thing I didn't like about this issue is how kind of defeatist Superman is. Feels really out of character. I'll agree with that. Although I'm sure that Snyder is building him up to have this big heroic moment in the next issue. Mm-hmm. That again, you got to break him down before you can build him back up. Well, that's um, what they say. Yeah. But there's... um. There's this this like freewheeling quality of metal where it feels like everything that's happened. I mean, obviously, it's intricately planned out. This is something that Scott and Greg worked on for a very long time, and obviously, for DC to put its clout behind it, it can't be a fly by the seat of your pants operation. But doesn't it feel sometimes like things just happen because? Scott and Greg decided it midway through drawing a page. <laughs> and, like, you know, and I love that. I, I love that sort of um, carefree attitude that the book has where it feels like literally anything could happen. There's nothing that could happen that would be all that surprising. And I love that. I wish that comics were like this more often. Yeah. I loved uh, Wonder Woman smacking Black Adam in the face with the. Uh, with Hawkman's mace, with, yeah. Yeah, with the mace. And saying Shazam, 
Yep. You know that does it for me. <laughs> Sexually. Of course. Um, yeah, this was, um, this is super fun. I can't wait to see the, uh, the issue that comes out in the next few weeks. The, uh, mm. Dark Knight's Rising, the Wild Hunt issue. It, it is weird how for a while there, you know, we had all of those Dark Knight books coming out at once. It was every week we had a Dark Knight's book and then we just hit this draw. <laughs> um... But yeah, just, yeah, two more issues left. Counting the the Dark Knight Rising. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, let's move over to uh, sort of the end of, a, of an era of a book, and that is the Deathstroke Annual, number one, written by Christopher Priest with the incredible art team of Larry Hama on breakdowns, Dennis Cowan on pencils, and Bill Sienkiewicz on inks. That's like an all-star Hall of Fame level of creative team right there. Yeah. <laughs> that is wild. Isn't it? Yeah. Uh, and, it and it looks fantastic. You know, oh, yeah. You would think that maybe that many um, big creators with distinct styles would clash with each other, but not at all. No. I love uh, this issue, guys. I don't know how you guys felt. Oh, it was oh, incredible. It was, it was fabulous, and Man, did it go places! <laughs> yeah. First of all, let's let's talk about the framing device of this uh, Native American police officer that catches Deathstroke in the desert, and later you find out it's because he's getting rid of the. Um, he's essentially taking back the mantle of Deathstroke and getting rid of the Defiance stuff. Right. What a great framing device that was. It felt very... It felt appropriately Western, which was what it was going for, clearly. Right. Man. From beginning to end, it's just... And then the very next page, after the opening sort of... uh, The cold opening, you get the Power Girl stuck in... (laughs) Like, in between worlds. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, speaking of non-sequiturs, like... (laughs) So good. (laughs) Oh man! So this issue, Power, Power Girl really sold the show in this issue. Not not Karen, but right, Tanya. Um, Tanya. Yeah, I was gonna say like this is really Tanya's issue for mm-hmm. so many reasons. We see her go through so much, and what I loved about this issue is that there's this there's this statement that Tanya makes about being a Christian that you can tell comes from this like very true place. Like she's not happy that Joseph is having a date over because she's Christian. It can be read a number of ways. It can be read that she just doesn't like the sort of promiscuous nature of it. It can be read that she's homophobic, which is how a lot of the characters in this book uh, sort of take it. And it's this phrase that you could, it's this statement you could tell that she makes kind of off the cuff and it unravels the entire world in front of her. Mm-hmm. And I feel like in comics sometimes we don't get we don't get a slip of the tongue changing the status quo. We get an alien invasion, you know? Mm-hmm. And it, it it was just a wonderful little device that that Priest threw in there to give 
to give the team a reason to break apart that felt just very natural and very very Human. real to the world. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, it's also very much just, you know, not that this can't happen, that this doesn't happen in adults. Adults still say stupid things without thinking, but, you know, this is very much like she's still a teenager and she she says a thing without even really thinking about what it means. And, yeah, right, like you right. said, like, like she says, you know, she destroyed everything in two minutes. Yeah. And not only that, but I think that there's, um, you know, one of the things that Priest said when he took over this book was that one of the reasons he said yes to Deathstroke is that it wasn't a typically black book he was taking over. But I think he's done such a great job with the black characters in this book. And this this talks to a little bit of how, you know, if you're looking at African-American society, homosexuality is not as accepted there as it is in other parts of society. But it doesn't come off preachy in any way like every character in this book acts naturally and acts true to how you think they might be and so nobody comes off as particularly high and mighty or particularly right or wrong in these situations they just seem like real people right and it's also nice this is happening in a book where literally no one has the moral high ground right so it's the dynamic is really interesting. And we're on page eight, guys. <laughs> There's a whole lot more to this issue. Um, there was some good stuff with Wally here, and you know, and, and we see Tanya is like trying to find connection everywhere. You know, she she tries to put the moves on Wally. She tries, to, you know, she she just she's trying to find her way in the world and. There's a twist that we'll get to in a second um, that that sort of changes everything for her. But I also really liked this issue's... Um, I liked how Deathstroke was... Again, like, he's not undone by some giant earth-shattering event that causes him to kill again. It's sort of a natural progression that gets him to being back to being Deathstroke. It just this this issue subverts your expectations in so many ways. Mm-hmm. Vince, I feel like you haven't said that much. Talk to us, baby. Um, uh, Beast Boy. Beast Boy. <laughs> oh. <laughs> no, I mean this is really fantastic, and the and the 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 cliffhanger that it ends on with Tanya trapped in limbo with Karen too is just a perfect like comic book ending for a a character thread. Yeah. So we should talk about that just for a second here. It's believed that that Tanya killed herself because she is found hooked up to this machine and her lifeless body is found there. But the hook is that no, she she hasn't killed herself. It's that she was trying to get in touch with with Power Girl with Karen, sort of between dimensions or wherever wherever they are, and uh, that Wally unhooks her from that and therefore traps her there. Yeah, which is not totally unlike the situation that Tim Drake was in. Oh, interesting. Yeah. 
You know, I mean, obviously, like, the there are a few, you know, Tim, it was believed, you know, sacrificed himself, and but then was actually on, you know, Mr. Oz's planet here. They think Tanya killed herself, but is actually trapped in a in a weird pocket dimension. Do we think we're going to see these characters anytime soon? Oh, I... <laughs> I think we're going to see Power Girl pretty soon. Well, yeah, we see her again after <laughs> this week. That's a whole other story. Um, but do you think we're going to see the resolution to the story anytime soon? Um, I, uh, I it depends on how you define soon. <laughs> Like, in the immediate future, yes. I don't think this is going to be, like, a plot thread that we pick up, you know, five years from now. Um, I I think... Well, you know, it's interesting, because you, we really just don't know where DC is going with some of these characters. Like, obviously, Power Girl has had a lot of ties to the JSA in the past. Ooh. And JSA is really heavily tied to Doomsday Clock right now. And JSA, like the last iterations of JSA, were all about training the future. Mm-hmm. So having two Power Girls on the team is not not outside of the realm of possibility for JSA. Chris, Christopher Priest writes JSA. Holy Dumb. shit, man. Hell yeah. Yes. Fair play. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> uh, um, I don't know. I I think that we'll probably see. I I I'm gonna place my bet that we'll see these threads picked up on by priest within the year. I think it'll be after the Batman versus Deathstroke event that's happening in Deathstroke from. April through, I want to say it's October. Yeah, so I... Yeah. Anything else to add about this annual? Um, It's hard to say... This is probably my favorite issue of the week, and man, it's up there with my favorite issue of the series. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. It just accomplishes so much, too. You know, it's exactly what I want an annual to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it uses its extra pages wisely. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, we've talked about how great Deathstroke is since it started, but it's shaping up at this point to be one of the all-time great DC runs. And mm-hmm. I, I think I feel comfortable saying that now that we're, you know, almost two years in, that when, when this is eventually collected in an omnibus or two, it's going to deserve a space on all of our shelves. Mm-hmm. Wow, I can't believe you'd offer to buy it for us using Multiversity's money. That's exactly what I just said. <laughs> Open your friggin' ears. <laughs> oh, my friggin' ears! <laughs> I expect this kind of language at Denny's, but <laughs> <laughs> there's our Simpsons reference for the week, folks. Mm-hmm. Yep. Right. Steamed hams. Steamed. <laughs> Aurora Borealis. Um, okay. <laughs> let's uh, let's talk about Detective Comics Annual number. Is this number two? Number one. 
Um, Number one. Yep. Written by James Town the Fourth, illustrated by Eddie Barrows. I have a feeling that our opinions on this are going to be a bit different. So, Zach, let's start with you. What did you think of this issue? It was a little long for this story, but, and I usually very much dislike retellings of origins, I felt like this was necessary, enjoyable, and earned. Vince? I think it was fine, but I gotta say, I I read this directly after the Deathstroke annual, and when you read those two annuals back-to-back, you really appreciate how much Deathstroke does with an oversized issue, and then you compare what Detective Comics annual is trying to accomplish in essentially the same number of pages, and it's just so much less satisfying sitting right next to one another. Um, I think this, I think the story is perfectly acceptable. Cromulent even. Oh, oh man, that's a, that's one we've not revisited in a while. <laughs> Crumpulent. Crumpulent. Yeah. I don't even remember what, what, Oh, uh, Casper Crump. Crump. Oh, that's yeah. right. Our, our friend Casper Crump. Yeah. Friend of the show. Uh, yeah. It's, <laughs> It's just, it's just, you know, it. This, whereas Deathstroke was infinitely unpredictable, this was predictable pretty much the whole way through, right down to the bad dad. Um, it was fine. The art was pretty good for the most part. Kind of gross at times when it was supposed to, like it was trying yeah. to be gross. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was really effective. Um. It did, did a lot of good things, but but in a in a week of really strong, really surprising issues, it was pretty conventional. Yeah, my my take on it was that this is the best Eddie Barrows art has looked since Martian Manhunter. Sure, um, and I think that this would have been much better served to have been the next issue of Detective Comics. Or the or even you know to have had this annual come out last month and tell the sort of climax of the Clayface story in a longer format, I felt that this was about ten pages too long for the story that was trying to be told in the issue, which is something that Zach said as well. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, this would have been a great one shot issue, I think. Um, not so much an annual. Yeah. That said, though, I think that there was uh, there was a lot of stuff in the issue that worked. Like, in many ways, when you're reading this, it's very easy to forget that you are that you're reading a that you're reading the same character that's currently on the team in Detective. Because so little of what you're seeing feels like the clay face that you've been reading for the last year and a half, right? Mm-hmm. And, and so to make you care about that, the book has to do a little bit more than maybe it would have 
if I don't know. It's fine. It's it's a good it's a good issue, with with some really good Eddie Barrows art. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I liked how his dad is sort of Vincent Price. Yeah, yep. <laughs> yes, indeed. I also found it a little bit jar not jarring, just unusual. So obviously, his name Basil Carlo is a Boris Karloff sort of mm-hmm. riff, and Basil Rathbone, and yet they mention Boris Karloff in this issue. Yeah, <laughs> right, right. So, yep. That that's a little strange too. That's all right. Um, I, I uh, flipped to page four real quick. Okay. I got to the bottom of page four and I went, "Woo!" <laughs> it's twisted. Yeah. <laughs> oh. I mean, is there anything that could have messed up Clayface more than the dang Joker? <laughs> Jokerizing his fries. Oh. All right. Let's get to the Flash Annual, number one, written by Josh Williamson, illustrated by um, Howard Porter and Christian Duce. Oh, I hooted and hollered my way through this one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of DC3 catnip in this. <laughs> Look at the, go to page, okay, first of all, go to page four. Anytime you've got the Flash Museum, you're guaranteed to see some stuff in the background. Like you got that Max Mercury Impulse, that crew in the background? Exactly. Yep, yep, yep. Oh, that was just, that doesn't even make sense. Why are they there? It makes sense. I mean, it makes sense, but like. It's that sweet, sweet candy. Yeah. Like none of them are around, you know. So it's like, <laughs> well, there's a there's a there's a good you know, five hundred years between <laughs> now and then, right, <laughs> right. I do like how uh, five hundred years in the future, they uh, <laughs> they still are honoring the New Fifty Two Justice League logo, though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of course. And the and Jim Lee's cover, it's immortalized. Yep. You can't ever get rid of it. <laughs> just just to the right of the of Max Mercury in them. Yep. 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 <laughs> yep. That that very memorable cover. That that is essentially like in canon the Iwo Jima of the DC universe. <laughs> oh no. Well, some might say reading the New 52 was similar to the burden that the <laughs> I won't even finish that. Uh, especially because Iwo Jima was in the Pacific. You, you ignorant slut. Um, all right. But no, this... Um, I won't ever again, I promise. Uh, tonight. Exactly, yeah, tonight, of course. Um... So this, uh, you know, this issue did more for for Wally West, the older Wally West, than just about any issue since DC Rebirth did for Wally. Um, it also had some nice moments with the younger Wally. It had some good Barry stuff. This was 
This was a a really fun flashbook. Mm. Boys? Yeah. Yeah, this issue was was really good. Um had me it had me really excited for so there's an idea in this book that I think is really cool that Barry I'm not Barry, that Wally can kind of weaponize his memories basically you know like this opens up the doors for all kinds of opportunities and possibilities for rebirth moving forward um like you want to do a convergence style miniseries brian do something where wally just goes around and makes people remember things like yeah. 9-11 yeah <laughs> exactly and how barry caused it yeah <laughs> Exactly. It was Barry, right? It was Barry, yeah. Yeah, okay. Um, going back, like, way, way back to the Hour Cosmic days, I used to say that I wanted Wally to be the, the new Cycle Pirate, where he was the only one who remembered the pre-Flashpoint history. Uh-huh. And we kind of got that now. Mm, yeah. And, uh, yeah, it's fun. Um, I'd like to point, uh, at the top of page 12, okay. where, where young Wally is saying, so can somebody tell me what a top is without looking it up online? And, uh, I just want to say phrasing Wally. <laughs> yep. That's <laughs> uh, a little. Yeah. If, if you Google, what is a top? Yeah. In 2018. Yep. Yeah. Keep your safe search on. Yeah. <laughs> ooh, ooh. <laughs> Um, I, uh, Why? <laughs> um, Neil Hamburg is becoming a running bit on the show. Yeah. Um, um, I thought the stuff with, um, uh, what's her name? Magenta. Yes. Wally and Ma- I get, I get so fucked up by that because she's got magnet powers, right? Right. But her name is Magenta. It is Magenta, wanted... right? I'm not. I'm not mispronouncing that. It's gotta be. It's gotta be. It's spelled like Magenta. Yeah. Unless right. are you supposed to pronounce it Magenta? Like Magneto. I... Like a mag. Yeah. I, I always want to say Magneta, but I know it's not that. It's <laughs> but I always want to say that because it's a magnet. Right. Person. <laughs> Fucking Magenta. How does that work? What? I said fucking magenta. How does oh. that work? <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah. Nicely done. Nicely done. Um, I thought that stuff was really effective. Agreed. Yeah. And that's like, that's, that's the perfect type of character for Wally to sort of unlock memories for, because ultimately it doesn't matter that much right now. It's not like, you know, there would be some serious like DC Universe consequences if Wally unlocked Bruce's mind right now, right? Where like he remembers everything all of a sudden. That would be that would be possibly problematic. Magenta can remember whatever she wants, and it's not going to affect any other book or even any other story. Really, it's 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 perfect for like a first entry into this, as Vince called it, like weaponizing of memories. I believe Zach said that. I'm sorry, Zach said that. I'm sorry. We're interchangeable. We're the same person. <laughs> no, you're not. 
No, Zach, you're the good you're the good boy of the DC three. On my no, hand, you are obviously the good boy, Vince. <laughs> on my hand, I have written Zach equals tall, Vince <laughs> equals Packers. So, <laughs> yes. Um, and then the very end of the issue made me hoot and holler the loudest because you're such a big fan of Jeff Johns and. Francis Manipal's 2010-2011 Flash series? I literally am. (laughs) Are you really? Yes, I was. Or because you loved season three of the Flash TV series. (laughs) I have not seen that. I didn't know that was... No one likes that. Uh, But the... I didn't didn't realize you liked that series. I did, yeah. And I liked the Renegades and... Yeah. Yes, I did. uh, I I have very fond memories of that specific flash run from john's um i was graduating college at the time and i was leaving minneapolis for maybe the last time i like i had no idea where i was going to be and and i picked up a couple of those issues on my way out and and i'm I'm tearing up now you guys here i am i just remembered how delayed it was and then how disappointed i was that it got canceled after 11 or 12 issues. issues yeah yeah, although the, I love that, man, we're going to go on a tangent, but I love that Barry Allen from the alternate universe who rode the motorcycle. <laughs> yeah. Remember we were Such supposed to cool get... design. We were supposed to get that Flash Speed Force book. Mm-hmm. <sighs> yes. So many wasted, killed promises by Flashpoint, by the new 52. They need to do like like what if after all this rebirth stuff is over and they set the timeline right and everything, they go back and do a bunch of those books. They won't, but wouldn't that be great? Like do those books as in tell the stories that would have been told in that timeline. When when <laughs> Jeff like, Johns uh... <laughs> gets upset that Brian Michael Bendis is the new DC head honcho. In order to make things right, they will let him have his own line where he just goes back to 2010 DC and <laughs> carries on from there. Yes, I love it. No, just tell those tell those same stories, not as an extension of that specific timeline where nothing in New 52 or Rebirth ever happened, but like, just do the Speed Force story they were going to do. And try and make it work with everything that's come before. Okay, you know? yeah. No, I want the other way. Yeah. <laughs> so you essentially want what Larry Hama has for G.I. Joe comics. Yes, yeah, 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 absolutely. Yep. Okay. And, uh, yeah, so I want that. I want James Robinson to be able to finish what he was doing. Uh, Justice League? I, yep. I want... Uh, uh, what are some other examples? I want uh, the. Mark... I want Batman Inc. to get to yep. finish the way it was supposed to. Yep. I want yep. that Red Robin series. The Robin, the Robin's book, you mean? No, or... the Re- the Red Robin series that was being written by um, Fabian Nacienza. Yeah, with, with, with the Marcus with Marcus Toe on pencils. Yeah. Yep. Yep. I really. Might as well bring back the Step Round Back Girl book while you're at it. Oh yeah. Yeah, we should we should probably uh, give the people what they want and give a proper sequel to Superman Grounded. Yep, 
Absolutely. Okay, I I really didn't hate Superman Grounded, <laughs> and uh, especially Jeff... when when Chris Roberson took over, it got good. It did. That is true. And Jeff Lemire gets to write uh, <sighs> Superboy again, and he that gets was... to he Man. gets to do his David Lynch shit that he wanted to do with that book. Yeah, that book was so good. It was. Um. Paul Levitz gets to come back and write more Legion. Oh, wait. Um, <laughs> wait till you hear who's writing Legion in Rebirth. <laughs> Paul Levitz. Paul Levitz. Akira Yoshida. <laughs> Akira Yoshida. Indeed. Uh, Marvel's hottest hire. Um, yeah. Marvel's hottest hire is Akira Yoshida. Did you hear this about how he's uh... has... Oh, no, no, never mind. <laughs> no, what was that, Zach? Yeah, I go for uh, it. I was just gonna. Did you hear about how he's gonna save Marvel by he's rolling back all the all the girl comics, all the SJW comics. He's gonna make Marvel good again. Yeah. Oh, is that is that what they said? That's what they say. Oh boy. Speaking of SJWs, the Silencer number one. <laughs> Uh, no, we we had a few more to get to before then, but we'll we'll get there. Um, can I can I before can I start out the silencer review though by just ranting about uh, John Romita Jr. for a second? Before oh yeah, we actually talk about the book. Okay. Oh, oh yeah, really. <laughs> <laughs> Zach, maniacal laugh, the... maniacal <laughs> laugh. Where did I've never heard Zach uh, that maniacal before? He's like oh. the, he's like the dang Joker over. Yeah. No one, no one brings out the Joker in me like JRJR does. That is twisted. God. That is some twisted stuff. Do you know if you put K's in, in between the R, the J and the R, you get Joker, Joker? <laughs> <laughs> Guys, every time I see that, I get scared. Yeah, I, I'm, I don't know if I can finish the show. Yeah. I'm spooked. <sighs> well... Let's talk about the Joker's girlfriend, Harley Quinn number thirty-six. Uh, Vince, you read this? I did read this. Um, well, the good news is that uh, Frank Thierry is keeping the dick jokes fast and furious in this. Are you referring um, to Dick Grayson or penis? Penis. Okay. Penis. Um, this issue is uh, extremely boring, but. When we thought, I think the last time we talked about the book, we thought, uh, oh, Frank Thierry's just continuing on with the same characters that uh, Palmiati and Connor were using to kind of extend the, the the feel of this book a little more, I guess because it was so popular, rather than going in an entirely new direction. And then kind of by the end of this episode, or the end of this issue, Harley's kind of like, yeah, I'm leaving you all, and the book's going to get a new direction. So, okay. so um, it was it was weirdly. It seems like now I haven't read the next issue after this yet, but it seems like Frank Thierry just decided to use two issues to to wrap up the Palmiati and Connor stuff. Weirdly, which I kind of get, maybe sort of. Yeah, and kind I don't of. know that might, that might not bear out, but. That's what it felt. It felt like a comic book changing of the guard where they're like, all right, now we're done with this extended cast that Connor and Palmiotti invented. So. Right. Can we all just breathe a sigh of relief that Bendis isn't doing a Harley Quinn book? Yet. 
Yeah. Yeah. The the um what you don't realize is that the young animal style line that he's curating is going to be entirely based around Harley Quinn. I think all it was Suicide Squad all the time. Yeah. I, I think it was multiversity contributor Benjamin Birdie who said that a Bendis Catwoman book seems like an inevitability. Yeah, I don't know. I I really think he's gonna do like two three years on Superman and then do two three years on Batman. Yeah, like the same type of thing. Do Batman and Detective. Well, apparently the day before the Superman announcement came out, he said in an interview or maybe it was on Twitter or something that he had a like a Batman Plastic Man story, right? Well, I just saw that it was a Batman story that was essentially like the sequel to his dark, his Daredevil. Daredevil, yeah. Yeah, it was like the second half to, in his mind, his like Daredevil Batman crossover. So that's either what he's doing like two, three years from now, or that's something for his DC, his like extended DC imprint where he's using characters. Uh, established characters. I could see him doing like a Brave and the Bold style Batman book too. Yeah. Because he says he wants to use all of his favorite DC characters. So, you know, doing just a book where you can bring in somebody with Batman every week. I, c- I could see him already plotting his, like, like bare minimum plotting his Batman run, even if it's like three years away. Oh, yeah. I could, I could see him do that. I think Bendis is a guy who like, he probably has a plan for how he would write almost any character. And is just waiting for the chance to do it. Yeah. I think it's also pretty significant that Bendis signed with DC in November. And his first issue isn't coming out. Like, he has a story in Action 1000 in April. But it's not to the last week of May that his first like full DC ah. issue is happening. And just how much time that is in comics in the comics world like mm-hmm. to prep stuff. But when you look yeah, at Yeah, I mean this, he almost died, but yeah. That is true, but I think this was planned already before that, you know. Um sure. I think that just it it just shows how well prepared they're trying to be for this run. To make sure that all the pieces are in place, but anyway, let's dig into JLA Doom Patrol number 1. Written by Steve Orlando and Gerard Way, illustrated by ACO Akko, not quite sure how that's pronounced. Um but Guys, how great was this issue? <laughs> it was very great. I definitely wish we could have read Doom Patrol number 11 first, but... Does this take place after do? that? I get the impression that it does, yeah. Um, Just because... Well... I mean, do we want to just, like, dig right into it? Um, I just want to say, like, up top, who... it, it was great to see the Midnighter team of Orlando and ACO back together. Yeah, and it looks completely different. Yes. Some of ACO's In a best good way. It yeah. is, I agree, I agree. Um, but, yeah, like, in the last issue of Doom Patrol, you know... Um, we found out Terry was pregnant with Casey's 
kid from when they kissed and fell out a window. Yep. <laughs> and then we find out that Milkman Man is that baby. Yep. And... Uh, when, when we kissed and fell out a window is my favorite uh, Bell and Sebastian song. <laughs> <laughs> oh, me. But yeah, it just seems like this, you know, once we read Doom Patrol number 11, it'll feel like the missing chapter here. I guess. That was an excellent joke, by the way, Vince. I didn't laugh as hard as I should have for that. It's an excellent joke. It was really good. It was a good joke. You're on top of the world again. Um, (laughs) Yes. So, Zach, yes, well said. I agree with everything you just said. I thought the Community League of Rhode Island was a lot of fun. (laughs) Mr. Lobo? (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Fun way to, to introduce the JLA. Um, Carl Lobo, goddamn. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, man, what a lot of fun this was. Yeah. And and uh, ACO got some double page spreads to like really let loose with some some milky action. <laughs> yeah. So much milk. And I gotta say, it it sometimes doesn't look like milk, but like <laughs> some other substance. Lactaid. Yeah. That. <laughs> That's what we'll go with. Yep. Um, I love the page with all the different comic book issues. Oh, that's oh cool. that was so good. So that was like all of their first appearances. Yeah. Right? Well. I'm pretty sure is what, well, for these the, iterations of the characters. Yes, for these iterations. Because I was going to say Killer Frost's first appearance could not have been the new 52 No, it was. Story. It was. That's where the character's from. That, that this, Caitlin, Caitlin Snow, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, this iteration. I'm saying there was right. Killer Frost before. Well, right. Just like that, that issue of Justice League isn't the first Black Canary issue. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. Or Brave New World. That wasn't the first. Well, that was Ryan Choi, but, yep. you know, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I got you. I got you. Yeah. But, uh,. Milkman's origin. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Eleanor's or- his origin is like the, exactly the same as Superman's, and then all of a sudden he's in a milkman's yep. outfit. Yep. <laughs> he uh, <laughs> yeah. So I guess young animal is in continuity, but it also like doesn't matter. And that's really great. Yes. That's the way comics should be. Absolutely. I am really good. That's like, it's like every time somebody asks Scott Snyder, when metal takes place, I want to just claw my eyeballs out because all you really need to know is it's in continuity and who cares when, yeah, (laughs) who cares if it, you know, like it's never once been an impedance to my enjoyment of that story. And I, and if they ne- if the Justice League of America goes back and never mentions the Doom Patrol again, it will not have made this any less than a kick-ass comic. No, it's so well laid out. This is a just a gorgeously laid out visual issue. I love that we get the umpteenth Kevin Maguire homage <laughs> of the Justice League and uh, and Doom Patrol. Even if I did get salty with him on Twitter today. 
Oh, you did? Yeah. He tweeted out that, you know, he um, he instantly bought Ewan McGregor as young Obi-Wan Kenobi. He wished he could say the same about what's-his-face from Solo. Oh. And I tweeted him, I said, you felt that way about Ewan McGregor after seeing the first Phantom Menace trailer? And he said, I did. And I just didn't respond. Don't don't piss off Kevin Maguire. Yeah. He's he's back at DC now, writing writing with Bendis. Drawing a drawing an issue of Bendis's uh, is uh Yeah. Yeah. I'm excited. He's about back. That. He's, he's good again. Yeah. Oh. Um <laughs> I uh I, I will say that like reading through all of this, I can't wait to see all the sort of the one shots that are gonna follow this up. But I do not see how Mother Paddock is going to play into this at all. Mm. Like, wait, all... Until, wait until you see it. Yeah. Oh, oh, you've read it already. Okay. Yeah. Um. <laughs> okay. Uh, Vince has, Vince has uh, told us something about the issue. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, this is just so much fun. This is exactly what I hoped this issue would be. And I can't wait to dig into this crossover more. This, yeah, this issue was even better than what I hoped it would be. Because I kind of was ready to not love this. Um, just because of my trepidation about mashing up Young Animal with other stuff. Yeah. I agree, but I think, I think the key is that it feels... 65% young animal, 35% JLA. Yes. Mm. It's like way more young animal than it is DC. Definitely, yeah. And then we get a little short tease here, the backup written by Mags Visaggio, illustrated by Sunny Lou, that will then be picked up later on in a, a miniseries after Milk Wars are over. And uh, I really enjoyed this first installment. Yeah, I love the concept. I just what a great, um, you know, creating this astounding tales, uh, like fake old comic. Um, what a great way to introduce this book that's coming. Agreed. Agreed. Let let's get let's keep the hits coming here. Let's talk about Mystic U number two. Oh, oh my God! <laughs> Go ahead. Uh, I fucking love this book. <laughs> <laughs> I absolutely love it. Um, Elisa Quitney and uh, Mike Norton, top notch work here. Jordi Belair on colors too, right? Yeah. Oh man, this book looks so good. It looks so good, and it's so contemporary. Like, man, um, I love it. It's funny. There's character work all over the place. Like, the arc that Zatanna goes on in this issue alone is totally incredible, believable. She kind of goes through this... Um, uh, kind of falling out with her friends or whatever and tries and finds a new group of friends. And it's kind of this like dicey cult situation that she's getting into. And it's just totally, 
it's perfect. The the tone of this book is perfect. It made me laugh several times. It looks great. It's endlessly intriguing. There's every every character has a, their own little thing going on that you're intrigued about. There's mystery. It's diverse. It's awesome. This is maybe the most accurate representation of mycology as I've ever seen in, in, in any media. And I did not go to a magic college. But just the <sighs> idea of like finding your own identity and people being weird and uh, and no one really knowing how to express themselves right away. And, and having to dress up in a trench coat and a top hat and because you're a big slime creature. <laughs> I mean, that is my day-to-day existence still today. You know? I I am a slime creature, <laughs> but uh, but no I I I'm with you Vince I I really adore this and and I also think that this is what's nice about this being a sort of smaller limited series is I fear that Zatanna leaving her group of friends could have been like a really poorly paced six issue arc of an ongoing, but because of the nature of this book we're only getting it for one issue. And that's kind of resolved going into the third issue now. And I appreciate that. Yeah, the pacing on this is really, really good. Zach, what did you think of the issue? Oh, I, I loved it as well. It, it's extremely enjoyable. Um, this is... Um, probably... Outside of maybe Seven Soldiers, like the best Zatanna thing I've ever read. Mm-hmm. Did you read that Zatanna Black Canary OGN? I didn't. That's I didn't. quite. That's quite good. I, I don't know if it's better than this, but that's quite good also. Um, yeah. This is the this is the Magic X Men that I never knew that I wanted. <laughs> this it is, is this is better than a lot of X Men I've read. Oh yeah, I um, um, I wonder. It's also funny that Sargon is basically Cyclops. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, more or less. Um, yeah, I wonder if this will lead to this group of characters getting getting a, getting an ongoing book or getting a sequel series to this. Because that's the other thing that's great about this is because it's set in the not too distant past, they could do two or three volumes of this. But I sure. wonder. I wonder if the demand is there. Yeah, I wonder what this is selling. It's so well, good. We can probably find out. Let's see. Yeah. But this is also one of those books that seems like destined to be a hit in the bookstore market. Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. you know will we'll probably if be... they market it right. Yeah. They could totally sell this as like a young adult. Oh you yeah. Know, they could. They could package this up and sell it as DC Inc. Mm. Now I. I yeah. I know the the like the the deal the publishing deal behind DC Inc is probably such that they can't do that they can't like retroactively say this was a DC Inc thing. Why you not? Know? Why not? DC owns everything. It's not like they're partnering with somebody else. This is all DC stuff. No, I I know. I'm just saying. Like I'm I'm sure there's contracts and people involved that are separate from this, and that it would. But they could they could prop this up in the exact same market. Yeah, you know. They could put this right alongside the Mira book and say, here, now you have two uh, dope comics. 
Two dope comics. I love the scene where uh, they're playing pool and <laughs> the pool balls become little colored dragons. But before that, they just rise off the table. Like, it's, yes. it, it's, a, it's a nice, subtle uh, transformation that happens. That's one of the great things about this book is that, and this is something that Norton is, like, traditionally great at, which is even when a scene has a lot of characters talking, there's interesting shit happening. Yep in most of most panels, you know, even when they're just sitting down drinking coffee or whatever, the coffee is going back and forth. Like Zatanna's pouring the coffee and then another character grabs the coffee and it's spilling out of the cup. There's just dynamic action happening in most panels. Mike Norton is so good. Oh, he's the, one of the best, one of my faves. Actually, this issue really sold it to me. Like he, is one of my favorites. Joel Jones is my absolute favorite right now. Mike Allred, and I feel like they're all kind of in the same-ish neighborhood, you know? It's really funny you say that. Um, when I was at Emerald City Comic Con in 2014, I think it was, Multiversity does this thing at con sometimes where we ask this, the same five questions to a number of creators, and we asked people... Uh, who would you want to be your comics roommate? Like, if you had to live with a comics creator, who would your roommate be? And almost everybody said Mike Norton. Like, like seven or eight people said Mike Norton. And then we presented Mike the list of people to Mike Mor- to Mike Norton of who he would, of the people who said him, who would he live with? And he chose Joel Jones. Mm-hmm. So they they could have been uh they could have been comics roommates, and that would that would be a studio I'd like to hang out at. Nice. Yeah. They have very they have very similar styles. Like if you look at their the way that they draw faces, yeah. Um, Mystic U, Mystic U sold seventeen thousand ish copies. Yeah, and it's well, well, it's not bad for a six dollar. Yeah, for yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I said, I think this is gonna kill it in the bookstore market. I hope so. It deserves it. Yeah, it's over hundred thousand dollars. It beat the Jetsons, so uh, and his boy Elroy. <laughs> what about daughter Judy? Jane, his, his wife? wife. My wife. <laughs> oh, Borat, George Jetson. <laughs> Jane, stop this crazy thing. <laughs> What's his son's name in Borat? Uh, his son. He he refers to his 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 right his son. I can't remember his name though. I know his brother Bilo. Yeah, yes, of course. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know his son. <laughs> Borat Sagdiev's son. <laughs> 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 Because, of course, if you just Google Borat's son, there's going to be some other Borat that pops up. <laughs> you never know. <laughs> he's... <laughs> he's He's got three sons, remember? <laughs> Biram, Bilak, and Huey Lewis. Huey Lewis, that's the one. Huey Lewis, as he calls him. Huey Lewis. Huey Lewis, yeah. Oh man, that's kind of this whole thing is kind of racist, though. So yeah, but uh, 
God damn, that movie still holds up. <laughs> oh, God. He's oh. shining a spotlight on the ugliest of middle America. Of course. Of course. Of course. Anything else to say about Mystic U? No, it's fantastic. It's a delight. Now, Vince, by popular demand, you have requested to start our review of The Silencer, written by Dan Abnett, illustrated by John Romita Jr. Okay, well, feel free to jump in at any time, but I just want to respond to the one uh, really stupid um, sort of headline that came out surrounding this book. Um, stupid on the part of John Romita Jr., I should say. Uh, he, there's an interview he did. Who was it with? Newsarama? Probably. Where several times in the interview, he talked about how he wants to be the least, uh, PC, uh, person in comics and how, uh, you know, social justice warriors are ruining comics and, the interviewer like sidesteps. He's like baiting the interviewer by saying this stuff, and the interviewer basically doesn't acknowledge it. <laughs> like he doesn't ask follow up questions. I mean, you or feel for the reviewer though. Like, you know, oh, you do. Yeah, it's like, uh, this especially is, yeah. this. This is this is one hundred percent interview set up through DC through Warner Brothers. Like you, you, you have to kind of you know tread lightly in the best of this situation. Let alone when you have a, uh, you know. A stereotype yelling at you. Right. So then, now this is the guy who, like, previously said some, like, transphobic stuff. Um, says, you know, said something in this very interview about, like, what's wrong with with, with women wanting to be in the kitchen or whatever, you know? God. Which is, like, you know... I mean, I guess, but coming from a, coming from a anti-PC dude, that, you know, that is not probably the right thing to say. Or I, I, I also think that's a gross misunderstanding of what this comic is trying to say. Well, yes, that was going to be my point because all throughout this interview, he keeps asserting that he is, this is different making this, cause this, this, the silencer character on her guest is like a uh, po- Polynesian. Is that right? Or like at least part. I believe um, so. Yes. Yeah. I should have looked this up before, but anyway, some ethnicity that John Romita Jr. shares, right? Because, um, but but he was talking about how, um, you know, he wrote this in the book not to be a social justice warrior, not to be anti-PC, but because it was different. He said, we just wanted to do everything different with this comic. Like, uh, you know, she retires from being a, an assassin or whatever and wants a normal home life. Because it's different, and and she's you know she's got tattoos and stuff, not to be that, and she's a, a different race, not because it's uh, diverse, but because it's different. But my thing is, is that he's saying that to appeal to a certain crowd, but this book that we're reading, what is the difference? What's the what? What is the difference between this and Kamala Khan? Right, you know, I mean, I mean, yeah. I mean, on the surface, why? Just because he says that it wasn't done for diversity's sake, doesn't make this character any less diverse, right? You know, he's and only saying that to appeal to people who are going to hoot and holler at that headline, to appeal to this like wave of idiots in comics that 
are mad about this stuff about about their favorite characters being replaced with women and you know people of color and trans people just he's just throwing meat to the dogs when this book why just because he says it's different from those books it's different you know it's certainly not as good as <laughs> yeah. Ms. Marvel but that's a whole different issue i'm talking about the, the on, on face value what this book is well that that was going to kind of be one of my comments on this book is that the book does a nice job in in showing you why this character is happy outside of her of her career as an assassin. The entire time I read it, I never once thought like what an anti-feminist take this is because it's not presented that way. It's that she's happy. She she found someone she loves. She's a kid. Right. She's happy. She doesn't have to like kill people, <laughs> right? Exactly. On a daily basis, you know? yeah. Like and I, I feel, I feel like that's Abnett's light touch where Ramita, you know, Ramita sees this as one thing, and Abnett is a better writer than that. <laughs> yes, but not only that. Like you said, you know, that interview with with Ramita, he kind of talks about people being mad at like at comics, essentially d- destroying their favorite characters or whatever. Nobody was like. Man, imagine how great the silencer would be if it was a white man. Like this is not that situation. This is not people getting mad at at new more diverse iterations of characters they love. This is a book no one gave a shit about and no one's going to give a shit about be, no matter what. Like, it's, it's just it's such a weird it's such a weird hill to die on. Well, and it's just the the part that really bothers me is because is that he he merely says that uh, his portrayal of a person of color in a comic is different from Ms. Marvel and is different from uh, Iron Man because he says it is, you know? Yeah. You're you're right, there's a difference in in character there and the value of, like, Tony Stark Iron Man right now is, like, way higher than the silencer, of course. Of course. But if his point is that uh, his version is not... Um, social justice warrior material because it's quote unquote different. Well, isn't making the main Iron Man character a black girl scientist different? Isn't make like he says over and over again in the interview. Well, it's different. Our book is just trying to be different. Well, aren't all of these, isn't the reason why they're turning Thor into a woman and what, you know, whatnot, um, to tell different stories? <laughs> to tell different stories. Exactly. I just, I take umbrage with the fact that because he wants to appeal to a certain comic fan, he just thinks he can just say that this is different for the sake of being different when he's he, he he's doing the, you know, fundamentally the same thing that any of these other books are doing. As uh, I'm, this is the last thing I'm going to say because I want Zach to talk a little bit. But uh, as somebody who has interviewed Ramita before, I got the impression that he was not the most uh, practiced interviewee in terms of having sort of pat answers prepared for everything. He seemed to be a type of person who who answers pretty off the cuff with this stuff. And so I, I'm I'm not defending him. I will say this: he might have gotten a tone from the interviewer and is the type of interviewee to just, like, double down on that. Like, 
oh, this guy thinks I'm doing this for this reason. I'm just going to spend the whole interview correcting him. That's sure. that's not a defense at all. But I don't know if this is this. I I don't know if he necessarily is as fervent in this belief as uh, as he appears to be just based in that one interview. Mm-hmm. That's all. We should probably talk about the comic at some point. Well, Zach, you want to get in on this Ramita stuff or <laughs> not really? Um, I mean, gosh, just like in the past two weeks, I've seen way too much of like comic book writer artist politicking, <laughs> like for a lifetime. We didn't even and talk about EVS. We yeah. didn't even, um, but. You know, whatever, fine. I would totally expect male creators in this industry of a certain age to align themselves in a certain political ideology. I shouldn't be surprised by that. So I'm, you know, I don't know. (laughs) It's par for the course, I guess. Um, That said, man... I'm still a I'm still a John Romita art mark. <laughs> you are. Oh, I and I am not at all. I and I can like this is not good. <laughs> and yet somehow I still like it. Oh, I love you, Zach. I can't I can't tell you what it is because like I look through it and I see like some of these faces. And I'm just like, eh, this doesn't look good. Everybody and... looks like they're wearing the Joker's face. Yeah. <laughs> but I don't I don't know what it is, but I really like it in a weird way. I, don't I can't explain it. I don't understand why he started doing these, like, heavy lines in everybody's cheeks to accentuate their cheekbones. Mm. Every single character's got that. And he didn't used to do that. Did you um, guys like how the silencer at one point sticks her hands into the dick of the uh, <laughs> that guy who's fighting her? The, the main power generator. Yeah. <laughs> well, that is where we get our power. That right? is true, yes. <sighs> it's, not, it's certainly not PC, right? No, it's different. It's different. It's just different. Yeah. I mean, the comic itself, you know, Zach, even though what you said logically makes no sense, I somehow perfectly (laughs) understand it. You know what I mean? I do. Like, I don't hate the art, even though I think individual panels are, can be incredibly ugly. Yeah. But there's something about, especially this like, uh, robotic assassin character, neo-Nazi guy that shows up and like has a bunch of little uh, mechanical systems in him that pop out. That stuff, I think, is really interesting when Ramita draws, the way that he draws it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I feel the same way about the characters who show up at the end of the book as well. um, The, The other two robo assassin people. Yes, yeah. He draws that type of character really well. You know his his uh, his Captain America run with Rick Remender mm-hmm. was full of these kind of designs, 
they're kind of these like RoboCop era esque. It's almost like what the future looked like in the eighties. And I really dig that. So I guess I don't, I don't know if I like the line work, but I like his design work well enough. The story was just kind of a big bag of nothing. I don't think it's nearly as original as, as he thinks it is. Like, okay, maybe we haven't seen an assassin who, like, cherishes this, like, uh, Stepford Wives home life, home life, you know? But, like... I don't know. I feel like this is, could be the the plot of any, you know... It's like Kill Bill. Mid-grade budget. Yeah, exactly. It's like it's, Kill it's Bill. It's Kill and... Bill. It, it's like uh, Season 4, Episode 2 of Lost with Kate's... Uh... <laughs> when Kate the Taco Night episode? Oh, mm. you guys, yeah. you and you're lost. Yeah, it, it's like Kill Bill. Only nobody made anyone else drive a car uh, that they didn't feel safe in. <laughs> oh stopped. my gosh, some of the worst takes on that. the the <laughs> The best one I've seen is that um, that an amount of money being made could make up for yes. the, the amount of money justifies the risk basically right. also that it's 15 years old and it doesn't matter anymore yeah. <laughs> if it if it took you 15 years to talk about it it doesn't matter oh that's right yep yep the other way this is not like kill bill is that no one clunkily explains who superman is in this yeah and says that superman traditionally has bad art what's the deal with that yeah I hope Kurt Swan punches David Carradine in the dick in heaven right now. <laughs> yeah. Who am I kidding? David and... Carradine's in hell. Uh, <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm, I'm planning on going out the same way. Just so you're okay. In an Asian closet alone. Yeah. Sparing, sparing you the details. Yeah. Well. All right. Anything else uh... to say about the silencer? We're we're over two right now, really, and I don't know if you guys read the Immortal Men preview in the back of this week's books, but <laughs> <laughs> I didn't. But uh, I'm looking forward to it now. Yeah. So 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 here's an interesting question, gents. Uh huh. If the New Age of Heroes tanks. Is this the effective end of the deal at DC? Oh, I don't. I wouldn't say that. No, no. This feels very much like his baby. Well, it is. It is. But I don't think. I also don't think it's enough of a wave or an investment to get a guy fired. That's fair. Okay. You know, it's not like. Like if the new Fifty Two would have completely flopped, he's done. Yeah. You know. Yeah. If a major publishing. Uh, initiative fails i wouldn't call this major okay it's like it's like seven books and terrifics is going to be fine and it's swung out of metal which is excuse me i have the hiccups uh which is wildly successful and so you know i will say though we should be monitoring the hit percentage of this versus the hit percentage of the hanna-barbera books because that's like an interesting comparison to me. Because like, what 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 do we say? Flintstones is good. Snagglepuss is good. 
What else? I think it's still too early to say about Snaggle Plus. Oh, okay. I agree. A really dissenting voice, even. Well, no, I just don't <laughs> want to have another Trinity situation. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Um, well, I, I would say that of the Hanna-Barbera books, there have been um, that first line, the first wave, aside from the Flintstones, ha- was just garbage. Just wacky Raceland. And Scooby Apocalypse, it's still going somehow. Still going. Um, Future Quest was, like, interesting, but not... It was a right. Well, ex- yeah, it was fine. It yeah. didn't have the... It's like it's like if Future Quest... Not Future Quest, if Terrifics came out and was just okay. Yes, agreed. Um, so, you know, but I think that Hanna-Barbera, they've been, they've been at least trying... To figure out like what that sweet spot is, I, I think the Jetsons seems like a very calculated way to try and replicate what worked about the Flintstones, right? Mm-hmm. So they're they're trying to figure something out there. What I think is going to be really interesting about this New Age of Heroes thing is like at least from the first two issues, the artist has been credited above the writer in the credits, but right. we know that all these artists are leaving the books. Uh-huh. So, like, how do they justify saying this is an art first? Media, this is an art first line when the artists are changing so much. That doesn't seem to make sense to me. Well, hmm. I, first of all, they're already clearly giving these big name artists who are doing the first three issues enough leeway to be as late as they want. It looks like yes, because so they're so that's number one. Second of all, it's almost as if saying, look, you get three issues and that's it. In this day and age with these particular artists, maybe that's actually – maybe that actually is putting them first because it's not putting pressure on them to do any more than that. These guys can go and do whatever project they want, you know? Yeah. So so if you're saying like – all right, we're going to get three issues from you, Ramita. You get to you get to design them. You get to do the art first. We're going to do Marvel style, whatever. You plan it all. You're going to do it three issues. After three issues, no pressure for any more. You can go and do this, do whatever you want, you know. I feel like in this day and age with this sort of artist, with the Jim Lee types that are always late, I, I wouldn't say that that's anti-artist, you know. I, I, I wouldn't I don't necessarily say it's, say it's pro, but I think it's a wash. See, my whole thing is that if the if the idea was to give these artists the opportunity to create these new characters and do all the things that you said, then having it at almost done in the Mignola style of like just connected miniseries, be like, yeah, this is the Silencer Origins. Sure. And and when JR wants to come back and do the next volume, we're here for him to do that. To me, that is far better than having these artists create these books that are supposedly labors of love and then to give them off to somebody else for them to maybe never come back to. Whereas if they were saying, like, this is these are interconnecting series of miniseries, that even if it takes 10 years to get back to it, we know it's coming at some point. You know what I'm saying? I think for you and I that's true, and and but I think the reality is that if DC puts out three issues of Silencer and gets a big boost by having big names on it, 
they're going to want to pay off on that in issues four, five, and six, even if that artist isn't around anymore, and just let the trickle down happen. Let the, you know, the the people will drop the book, you know, people will trickle off, but they'll be getting those sales in the meantime. And I think they feel like they need that. Interesting. Would it, would it surprise you to see these artists' names still on these books as writers? Well, like... We've seen that not be the case. Like, In which one? We we have solicited uh, Damage Number Four with Carrie Nord as the artist, mm-hmm. and uh, it's written by Venditti, illustrated by Carrie Nord. And there's no okay. There's, there's no storytelling credit for Tony Daniel. No. Okay. Well, at least not in the solicit. You know, we'll see when mm-hmm. the issue actually gets here. Yeah. Anyway, let's take another quick break. We'll be back in just a second with our, our book club for this week, which is Shade the Changing Man, numbers one through three. So stay tuned. Hello, everybody. My name is Mike. And I'm Greg. And together we are Robots from Tomorrow, a twice-weekly podcast appearing at MultiversityComics.com. Each week we take some time to check out books and shelves on Wednesday that are worth your attention. And each month we dissect the previous catalog. We also have long-form discussions about books we've enjoyed, like Dan Clow's Ghost World and Jack Kirby and Mike Royer's Commanding. And if that's not enough, we also do creator interviews. Some of the talks you'll find in our archives feature Mike Mignola, Leila Del Duca, Sean Martinborough, Emma Beebe, and Greg Rucka. So that's a lot of content for everybody. Please subscribe to Robots from Tomorrow in iTunes or Stitcher so you never miss a thing. Robots from Tomorrow has hours of comic-focused entertainment week in and week out. And now, back to your show. And we are back with our book club, and because this is Vince's pick, take it away, Vince. <laughs> oh, shit. Okay. Uh, yes. The old Vertigo series from 1990, Shade, the Changing Man, by Peter Milligan and Chris... Bacalo? <laughs> Bacalo. We'll, we'll go with that. We'll go with that. Bacalo. Yeah. Chris Bacalo. Bobby Bacala. Bobby Bacalari. <laughs> yes. Hey, Julia, that, what are you doing? That feeling when Bay texts first. <laughs> Ain't nothing like it, T. <laughs> yes. So, um, so the reason I picked this book is because I've always wanted to read it. I've never read it. Um, and it's from that like sweet time when uh, Vertigo was doing a bunch of really weird shit, and I've heard nothing but good things. Um, and we've been enjoying Shade the Changing Girl so much in Young Animal. And I thought, what a better time, you know, than the little hiatus Milk Wars thing that's going on in Young Animal than to check out the old Shade the Changing Man. Um, series that I would assume a bunch of inspiration is taken from down to the character of Rackshade himself, who's recently shown up in Shade the Changing Girl. So we read the first three issues for today's show. Um, Zach, you start off. What did you think of this? I, I liked it a lot. I'm a big fan, even though I guess I haven't read terribly much of this era of vertigo well i take that back i mean i've read this i've read sandman um a handful of other things but i i really like this this era the vibe of these you know this era of books um and that said it it wasn't at all what i expected 
um, the places that it went. Yeah. <laughs> I did not expect this to be a, a JFK story. No. <laughs> no. No, no. More on that later. Brian, what did you think of this? Well, I had read this. I read probably the first trade or two when I was in college. And uh, so I had I had read this before, but I had totally forgotten a good chunk of this. And, like, I, I, I forgot just how how long it takes to get shade into this book. <laughs> like, the, the, the first issue has essentially this, this like... Uh, there's this really sad, really moving story that goes on for, God, almost 30 pages before Shade shows up. I'm trying to find here. I guess it is page 20 when we get the first, like, inkling of, of Shade showing up here. I forgot just how much of the story was about establishing the world and establishing things other than Shade himself. But I love these issues. I think this is something so special. And, and this gives me both a lot of hope for the Vertigo relaunch and a lot of sort of agita about what Vertigo's been for the last 10 years. Yeah, this is... Um, we'll, we'll get into the specifics of the individual content of the issues, but this is really a great example along with invisibles and even Sandman at times of how counterculture vertigo comics must have been back then. Mm -hmm. Uh, there's so much of that in just even these three issues alone. Um, daringness, like unafraid it's unafraid to, uh, confront some of the, some of the things that we think of as American, um, especially when it comes to the JFK stuff. And essentially they end up determining that America kill America killed JFK. They keep asking who killed JFK, you know, who, you know, it's the mystery. And they essentially decide that, well, America did it, you know, and that combined, like that subject matter combined with the art, it's like comics aren't really doing, I, young animal is doing a little bit of that. I think. Well, I feel with like the young animal Oh, go ahead. Animal is is attempting to do something similar to this, but Young Animal is doing it with with an eye to the past and trying to like replicate the feel and tone of this, which is worlds different than trying to create your own feel feel and tone. Yeah, I mean, I think Young Animal is speaking a little bit to things like um, consumerism. And mental health at times in in certain cases. Um, I'm not knocking a young animal. No, 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 no. I, I just no. I just think it's a very different type thing. Yes, I agree. That's why I said just a little bit. I'm I'm thinking mm -hmm. of things like you know the the shit from Doom Patrol. Uh -huh. Like that is a counterculture idea that that is just a microcosm of what Doom Patrol is. Whereas these books are just full of this stuff, you know. The taking on social, um, uh, social issues, not issues, that makes it sound like it's, you know, um, it's really subtextual in this, you know, like this is like big idea stuff happening in Vertigo. Mm -hmm. Um, it's, it's definitely a little different from Young Animal, but I mean, like, 
there yeah there was so much so much very specifically going on back then in vertigo that was taking on like institutions and not being afraid to be like gross and ugly and i don't mean like chris bacalo's art is ugly it's like ugly when it means to be but it's so busy and just it is you look at it and it is unmistakably vertigo style art you know and when you look at his work today, like like recently on Bendis's X Men within the last few years, or I guess five years ago or something, uh, it's so cleaned up and different. You know, I can't believe this is the same guy. It's I more mean, cleaned up, but it definitely. I that is one thing. Um, I you know I'm way more familiar with his art of say the past like ten years or so, and really like his art because it feels really unique and distinct and was maybe a little bit disappointed that this kind of fit more in just like the the vertigo milieu you know like the Mm -hmm. vertigo house style Um, he was part of the he was part of the creative like he is the vertigo house style that's true yeah yeah i guess like it's different looking at it retroactively you know what i mean yeah like at the time it would have seemed a lot more innovative, I guess. Um, now it feels kind of samey, especially compared to like how, you know, his stuff on say Dr. Strange felt. Sure. I love when he gets to let loose though. Like in the, in the very first issue, there's like the image of the, uh, I don't know, I guess it's an electric chair. And yeah, of course it is because he's good. Yeah. Yep. Um, cause that's where they get the, that's where shade gets the body from. Uh, but, yeah. uh, but yeah, there's, and it's just, you know, the page is like, it's the shot of this empty chair and the page is just scribbled all over with these very, like, I mean, it looks like he's, I, it wouldn't surprise me if he's, uh, you know, cutting the page with an exacto knife in some of these spots, you know, and and splotching ink in place. Like, I don't know how he does some of the, these effects, but it's a lot wilder than than he gets to be in like corporate comics anymore. You know? Yeah. Yeah. There's a there's a whole lot in this series that. I, I, I guess what I the other, the other part of, of reading this at the time that we're reading it now is that we're sort of accustomed to how Shade the Changing Girl has been structured and I forgot how oh sorry I'm looking for here I guess how uh, how much Shade didn't give a shit about his body whereas like we see Shade the Changing Girl try to like incorporate into being Megan, right? She tries to trick people into thinking she's Megan. Shade is not doing any of that here. This is purely like a meat puppet for him, (laughs) you know? Um, And it... The fact that that, that it's this this murderer, that it's this person who is is riding with victims' uh, family, like, you know, it's a really... It's a very ugly book. And I, I, I I don't mean the visual of it. I just mean... The sort of tone of the book is just it begins with this horrific murder story, and 
it instantly injects like themes of of racism and you know police brutality into it and and mental health issues on 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 both the sides of the psychopath and the victim you know there's just there's a lot of and and then you know issues two and three when it gets really into the the kennedy stuff you know the the kennedy stuff essentially comes back to a father losing his child there's just there's a lot of darkness here and i forgot just how much darkness there was yeah the kennedy stuff features a lot of really great artwork artwork too um Bacalo gets to essentially replay the Kennedy assassination in a variety of ways. Like you see an avatar of Kennedy in one form or another, get his head blown off in like five different ways. (laughs) And it's so cool the way that he depicts those different, different events. Um, Yeah, it's, it's wild. And then the big Kennedy Sphinx <laughs> yeah. with the missing piece of his head. And, oh, man. Yeah, just... And it's interesting that this... Co- Peter Milligan is a Brit, right? Yes. Yeah, it's interesting that this very pointed commentary uh, is coming from a Brit, and it feels really... It feels really accurate, and it feels like it's coming from um, a very truthful place you know i feel like if this were written in 2018 he would be told to like mind his fucking business on twitter all the time (laughs) (laughs) which yes which would be wrong it's yeah absolutely we need shit like this um zach any other thought any thoughts about the kennedy issues or anything else we didn't cover um I don't think so. Not really anything that we didn't cover. Um, again, it's just, you know, not at all what I would have expected, you know, coming at this um, really for the first time after reading Shade the Changing Girl. I I was both surprised by this being the emphasis of the initial story arc, but also surprised by how much um, Shade the Changing Girl really draws from this arc in terms of, like, the meta stuff. Mm. Um, especially, like, like Shade's fiancé and stuff. <laughs> That's, like, so important. I didn't expect that to show up like here, just right here, front and center in the first arc, or not front and center, you know, but like, yeah. Um, I thought that was interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, do you guys want to do another week of this, or or do you want to move on to our next pick? I'm game to do another week. Another another three issues, maybe. Yeah. All right. Zach, yeah. how do you feel? Yeah, I'm definitely down. I would like to read more of this. Yeah, I really. Oh, I guess one more thing I wanted to talk about before we entirely wrap up this show, regarding uh, Shade, the Changing Man, is that this ran for seventy issues, and I know that, you know, things were different back then, and Vertigo 
Vertigo feels like the place where you give books that maybe don't sell as much a little more leeway to run. Um, could you imagine this Shade the Changing Man in this form lasting for 70 issues in today's market? I mean, nothing lasts for that long anymore. I, I know, but like, ima- like, wow. or even even half that long. Could you imagine, like, Scooby Apocalypse is probably. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we're ending this by saying Scooby Apocalypse truly is the Peter Milligan Shade the Changing Man of its time. Um, yes. Well said. Also, just just random observation here. Do you guys remember that Milligan himself brought Shade into Justice League Dark? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it was yeah. going to be this big, exciting thing. And... Yep. and then it went over like a fart in church. Yep. But before that, even, do you do you guys remember... He was in the, the Suicide Squad. The, um, well, that, but the seven... What was it? Seven... It wasn't seven sold. It that Flashpoint miniseries, oh, you know, the seven, Secret Seven. Yes, yes, was, yes. That 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 had Milligan and George Perez art, but Perez only did like the first issue. Of course, man, I remember being so excited about that, and it was also just such a major letdown. Yeah. Like all of the Flashpoint tie-ins. <laughs> I'm gonna go pull out my complete Flashpoint and and read it. You had that bound, right? <laughs> yeah. I sent it back to Greg Matasevich. Okay. <laughs> Swapsies, you gave me you gave me Watchmen and Animal Man. Here's the complete Flashpoint plus diets. Uh, coming up next, Greg, in your mail, the complete brightest day. <laughs> he's going to come to the next Comic-Con we're all at, and he's going to bludgeon us with the books that we gave him. Yeah. To death. <laughs> Thank you for clarifying that. He's not just going to beat us; he's going to kill us. <laughs> well, that's as good a that's as good a place as any to end this show. So, thank you for listening. Thank you for being here for two plus hours of our nonsense. Oh, God. We appreciate it as always. Uh, go to multiversitycomics.com for uh, more from all three of us, and you can follow us on Twitter. I am at Brian Inzanap. I'm at Vince Ostrowski, and I'm at SirFox89. And we'll be back next week with more DC3Cast. And so until then, enjoy your uh, your comics. Bye. I reread all of Metal last night. Uh, I put my kids to bed, sat down, reread it all. <laughs> and, and I was struck by something. I was struck by the idea that here's a story that in all essence, is a dark story. I mean, the dark multiverse, it's it's clearly a story that is that has a lot of weight to it and a lot of darkness to it, but I can't... I was so struck in issue five by the hopefulness in it and how there's this real strong sort of sense of purpose and never giving up and hope. And when the press for this book started, you guys kept saying, it's not a dark story. It's not. It's, it's, it's a story. It means more than just... It's not just a darkness for darkness sake. So now that we're almost at the end of it, I want to ask you how important was it for you to make this story as hopeful and as much of a beacon of light as it's been? Oh, it was really important. I mean, I think, you know, it doesn't mean you, uh, you can't go as dark as possible with the, the threats. I mean, 
ultimately, you know, I never wanted to lead with this because I felt like it would be like the worst pitch for an event ever. But metal is really about those moments in your life when you step out of your comfort zone, you explore, you try something new, you look for answers that are slightly off the beaten path that you've been on. Um, and what you find is horrifying. You find only, you know, uh, information that sort of makes you feel like the worst versions of yourself are waiting for you and that only kind of pathways back to the darkest place that you've been um, are in front of you. Uh, and so it, it's meant to get very dark and very scary, hence, you know, the evil Batman and the Batman who laughs and all the kind of crazy of the dark multiverse and so on. But at the end of the day, the two things I'd say are one, you know, for me, when I was going back and reading events, preparing to do one for DC, one of the things I realized was I remember so vividly reading Infinity Gauntlet and Secret Invasion and Crisis on, uh, in, on Infinite Earths and all these as a kid and being transported and, and not even realizing that they were such sort of um, resonant stories for me at that age about, you know, growing up or about, you know, finding your true self or all these things because they're buried in this kind of lexicon of comic book lunacy. And at the same time, they were really important because what what got me through, I think, you know, childhood you know, as a kid who was anxious and Dungeons and Dragons and all that stuff were superheroes. They make you brave and excited to sort of face the things that you didn't think you could at that age and you take... Um, you take sort of refuge in that. And so we wanted metal to, to seem like it was this celebratory, crazy, out-of-control rock and roll take. But it does have a pretty, um, at least for me, uh, genuine heart where it's about those moments in your life where you don't know how you're going to find your way through. And for me as a kid, especially one of the things that helped me through were comics and superheroes. So it has that kind of, you know, celebratory swoop at the end. But it's also, you know, about finding those to me, like beyond sort of the, the fun of comics aspect of it, it's very much about sort of finding hope in others, finding that, you know, you're in it together in some way and having the Justice League reunite. So five is that moment, um, you know, issue five is sort of the, the all hope is lost. It's that moment at the end of Act Two when the characters have really ventured outside any kind of um, comfort uh, zone that they know and, and have what they have found is, you know, only things that point to doom. So uh, it's definitely the darkest. This and the Wild Hunt give kind of the darkest vision of what's to come. And and there is some really dark stuff here. Like, you know, the, the one panel that really struck me is it's uh, it's Bruce, who is still older Bruce, and Superman. And they're looking at the Kent family mailbox, and it's covered in, like, I don't know if it's worms or brains or blood or something. It's just this horrible image. Yeah, it's like an alien. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> you know, and it's just such this this sort of, you know terrifying moment but in the same panel you see bruce saying you know um never again will he lose hope and it's just this, it's a beautiful sequence so i i'm really i was very struck by that thank you uh what i was also very struck by was this sort of you know one of the things i love about about dc events in particular is every now and then there's a character that's there and you're happy to see him but you don't really know why they're there yet and part of the fun is sort of unlocking mm -hmm. all the bits of it and why is this guy there your Plastic Man stuff in this issue was really fun. And thinking, oh, he's a conductor. Oh, that makes so much sense. Okay, I love that. So I guess my question for you is when you're assembling sort of the team for this, when you're putting together all the pieces of, of the puzzle, how early was Plastic Man a piece of it? And beyond that, 
sort of where did this idea of having him be, uh, you know, like elementally important to the DC universe come from for you? Well, he was there from the very beginning. I mean, he's he's there in the forge and the casting, and he was one of the first characters that we sort of thought of when we were talking about people that could have innate connections to the dark multiverse, to things beyond the boundaries of the DCU and the source wall. You know, him, Hawkman, Hawkgirl, Martian Manhunter, you know, characters that have this kind of exploratory, Adam Strange, this kind of, um, you know, uh, sort of um, speculative science feel to them. So with Plastic Man, his big moment is coming up. So one of the fun things has been, like, keeping him in the egg the whole time, you know, and and sort of holding back and holding back and holding back, where, you know, we wanted to preserve his origin, make sure he was still the eel that everybody loved, where he's, you know, that kind of hapless thief who falls into a vat of bizarre chemicals and learns to change his shape. But what he doesn't realize is that there's, you know, a conductivity to the sort of... um, chemicals that have been infused into his cells. And so they're uh, connected to the sort of energies of the multiverse. And the more dark energy rises, like in metal, the more the forge turns dark instead of being balanced and people are feeling more and more fear, the more their nightmares run through his head. And as somebody who's conductive and changes shape, you know, by will, he can't stop himself from becoming these nightmarish things that people are imagining. So there's a heroism in kind of going back into that egg. But that said, the whole event, like I said, is about stepping out of your comfort zone, trying to find answers, trying to explore, going past the boundaries that you think are sort of that circumscribe your life. And so eventually in issue six, hint, hint, he might come out of his egg in a way that sort of celebrates all the crazy glory of Plastic Man. It's one of my favorite pages from Greg where it was like one of his fingers alone is like a dolphin or a killer whale with a chainsaw <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> like his pinky or something and I was it's a splash and I was like this is like there's so many pages I want to own but that's very high on my list from Greg <laughs> so Plastic Man definitely gets his day in the sun where Mr. Terrific is like look you can do this you can hold it together you can be the hero go crazy and he's like <laughs> so spoiler but yeah he's but yeah it's it's all those characters him Martian Manhunter who I think in this issue you know makes kind of a mysterious return you know, these are things that we've been planning for a long time. One of the things that we want to really reignite with metal, and we have a ton of story rolling out of it. One thing I just want to sort of hint at is that between now and next month when we start promoting Metal 6, you'll see we have a very big publishing plan um, and sort of story plan that has to do with the sort of repercussions of metal. All your favorite characters are not dead. We're not trying to do something like that where where we sort of kill off Superman and or Wonder Woman or anything like that. But what we're trying to do is sort of finish metal in a way that essentially says all that stuff that just opened up to the DC universe, not just the dark multiverse, but wait till you see even more what happens at the end. That creates huge story and expansive Kirby-esque fun for us to have over the next year. So Martian Manhunter, Plastic Man, Hawkman, Hawk Girl, these characters play a big role. There are exploratory science characters, you know, in that way. So so do the Justice League. Justice League have a huge role that's reconfigured in ways that I can't spoil. But all of that stuff rolls out of metal and you can start to see the beginnings here and we hope that on the one level you read Plastic Man, you're like, oh, he's so crazy. I love Plastic Man. What a nut. Look, his, you know, one of his hands is a tank. <laughs> and then on the other hand, you're like, oh, no, he actually speaks to what the, the heart of what the whole story is about. So. All right, I'm going to squeeze in one last question here, Scott. Um, you know, it's got to be very difficult to, to write an event like this because 
you want to make everything feel dangerous, you want to make it all feel like anything could truly happen, but, you know, the reader is savvy enough to know this isn't going to end the DC Universe, right? We've seen solicits past this, and, you know, (laughs) this is really going to happen. So how do you walk that fine line between doing something really cool and really different and not just making it a total cop-out at the end, being like, everything's cool? That's a great question. I mean, I did a lot of homework. I'll say that, Brian. Like, you know, I I spent the year that I was on All-Star Batman. One of the reasons I wanted to step out of the double ship and sort of do my own Batman in my own way and kind of train, you know, like almost train and be like, can I do a crazy Batman on the road with a chainsaw and a flamethrower? Let me see. Like all of that kind of stuff that we were doing in All-Star that I was practicing, you know, it, the idea was how how can you look at things from angles um, that you haven't before? Can you step out of that zone that you feel really comfortable in with Capullo and that to be able to look at the whole DCU that way? And I was, I was also taking the time to try and reread, you know, every event from Marvel and DC over the last, you know, 20 plus years. And it was a huge fun. That is the best homework, by the way, when you're like, I can't, I can't talk today. I have to work. And then you're picking up infinity gauntlet or whatever and being like, ah. The library, you know, like that—that that is great research to have to do. But what I realized, I think, looking at them was the ones that had very cataclysmic, sort of, you know, or very dark, sort of, you know, this is this is what happens. Unless they were happened to sort of occur at a moment in time where it, it felt appropriate for the zeitgeist or almost antithetical to the zeitgeist, they. The, the the ones I love the most were the ones that introduced the biggest new concepts, the biggest uh, expansions of the universe in which they played. Like, you know, they gave the characters these great story engines. Even talking to Brian Bendis, who's been honestly like one of the greatest like bre- you know breaths of fresh air in a while for me at DC. We've been friendly for a while, but having him here now and, and going out to California with him and getting to talk to him like extensively, and we talk we text like every day. The um, seeing, asking him about what it was like doing events, it was so interesting because it really boils down to the idea of you need to have it have effects, but you have to also gauge, I think, what fans what fans want and what you want to see and give them not just what they want to see but what they didn't know they needed. So it's not about saying, hey, you know what you didn't expect? I'm going to murder you know, Wonder Woman at the end of this. Yes, that would get a news story and you'd sell a lot of issues, but it's just you know, it's it's cruel, and it's not, if it's not organic to where you're headed, it's just, what's the point? Because everyone knows she'll come back. So the the challenge here was to say, how do we do an event that's about going past where you thought you, you could be, seeing only horrible stuff, and then becoming brave together, and deciding, you know what, we're going to go even further. To me, the idea is to expand the DC universe, to have, without giving anything away about what happens at the end of Metal, having whole new realms of it open up and have it suddenly become terrifyingly and wondrously big where the challenges are going to be new and that characters find themselves in roles they didn't expect where whole new quadrants of space open and there's new sort of alien races. There are all kinds of stuff that happens where you're like, wow, these are new challenges and new story. It makes us bigger and more additive and more, I think, exciting as opposed to, you know, contracting or sort of dealing with the grief of things regressing or, you know, multiple deaths and the shrinking. So for me, it's that. It's that metal is about going past where you expect it to be. And our plans post-metal are very, very much in that spirit, you know. So what I'm doing post-metal at DC, what my my partners on metal 
are doing, you know, the people that have written the the interim issues, Josh and James, all of us were about, and Brian Bendis, we're very much about expanding the DC universe as we go forward, not just in terms of new characters or that stuff. I don't mean like expanding it, like, hey, let's bring in a thousand new characters. It's about expanding the story that you thought these characters had. So you could say, God, I never thought that we could go that far with Wonder Woman or Superman where they're, they're so much bigger than I thought they should be. That's so cool. So that. My dad, John Romita Jr. 